There's an old cliche about no matter what truth you discover about India, the opposite is also true. I've always argued that India has always been deeply illiberal and my main piece of evidence for this is the way women are treated. Indian culture is unquestionably sexist and even in the year 2020, most women are second-class citizens in India. And yet, Indian history is littered with badass women. Some of them are outliers operating despite social constraints, but many of them were enabled by social norms, particularly in Kerala, where for centuries a matrilineal system made women the dominant figures in their households with men taking a back seat. And very often, the women who have stepped forward to take charge have proved themselves to be capable of leading from the front. Let's shift the lens for just a moment to the present. At the time of recording this episode on January 16, 2020, protests have been raging against the Citizenship Amendment Act for a few weeks now. These are mostly spontaneous protests erupting from below instead of being managed from the top. And it's especially striking to me how many women have come forward to lead the charge. Maybe these women will lead us towards more freedom. And if they need to search for inspiration, all they have to do is look south towards Travancore. Welcome to The Seen and the Unseen, our weekly podcast on economics, politics, and behavioral science. Please welcome your host, Amit Varma. Welcome to The Seen and the Unseen. My guest in today's episode is a young historian, Manu Pillai, and we'll be discussing his first book, The Ivory Throne. Manu, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me again. This is, I think, the third time. This is the third time, yeah. And we have actually in the past discussed how you kind of got drawn to history and stuff. But I'm going to ask you again because this is your first book. So, in the context of your book, it's uh, sort of worth asking, you know, why this subject and did you want to be a historian or did history happen to you after you decided you want to do this book? You know, history happened because of the stories. You know, as I've said before, I think in one of your earlier episodes, and I recently wrote an essay about it about my great great grandparents who were both divorcees in the eighteen eighties, both members of this you know so called high caste Sanskritic universe. You know, both were very well educated. Uh, they were both from landlord families and so on. And you would imagine, at least my textbooks gave me the impression that you know people like this were patriarchal families. There was no concept of divorce. On the other hand, only widowhood could end a marriage for a woman. But you know, then I'd go back to Kerala. And discover that the opposite was the case with my great great grandmother. She was not only a divorcee in her teens, really. She got married, I think, at thirteen the first time. Uh, she got pregnant. She was deeply in love with her husband, who was a Brahmin, uh, which again, you know, it's an intercaste union, which is where Brahmin men could marry Naya women back in the day. And uh, you know, she got pregnant. It was a female child, but it was a stillbirth. So when this poor Brahmin came afterwards to collect his wife and child and take them to his place, Brahmin's mother-in-law stopped him at the threshold and said, "You know, the baby was a girl." And because the baby died, there's something wrong with you. It's a little bit like in North India, women are blamed for the the children they produce. If they produce female children, you know, it's not considered a good thing, at least in very many rural Orthodox families. Uh, whereas here, it was the other way around. The man was blamed for you know having a dead baby girl because in a matrilineal family, the death of a female child is considered a bad omen. So the husband was told to go back, never come back, and the marriage was dissolved. And even when we were kids, there was a stone there where you know we were often told that he sat on that stone and he wept for an hour before he left. And some thirty-three years later, when he was dying, he was on his deathbed. He actually sent a servant to 
express the desire to meet this first wife of his after over three decades. She didn't go, but three of her children actually went and met him. And I thought this was a, a fascinating thing that, you know, you're not only a divorce in the 1880s, your first husband dies three decades later, and your children go to meet your their mother's first husband. And the second husband agrees to let his children go and meet his wife's first husband and things like that. Completely challenged everything I had. Uh, been reading in my textbooks growing up in Maharashtra. I'm sure in Kerala, people are slightly more aware of this if they grew up there. But for me, I think, you know, l- listening to stories like this was my first introduction to the matrilineal system. And I was always struck that, you know, this needed some kind of a wider dissemination. There is a lot of scholarly work on it. There is a lot of feminist work on the matrilineal system. But I thought someone needs to disseminate it to a larger audience. So is it fair to say that your desire to write the book came partly because no one had written this and you wanted to write it in a sense because this is a book you would have wanted to read? You know, I mean, the, I was doing a lot of reading on Kerala history. You know, I was doing a lot of reading on academic books and, you know, historical work, etc. Somewhere in 2018, I came across the name of Saitu Lakshmi Bai, who's the protagonist of The Ivory Throne. And I thought, you know, there's only one photograph of her with a little daughter in that picture, which which I could find online. In all the history books, she's mentioned briefly, but then very quickly people move on to the next ruler. And I discovered that, you know, all these rulers, there was a lot of general, you know, awe about. Everybody was very much about how they were good for development, how they were all very progressive and simple and so on, and not like your usual image of an Indian Maharaja. Of course, slightly exaggerated that they were so simple. They weren't. They, they were royalty. Royalty is never all that simple. But I was always curious as to why this lady was sort of footnoted, why she never made it to that kind of a mainstream recognizability in terms of public uh, intervenerum in Kerala elsewhere. Nobody really, they vaguely knew her name, but they didn't know what happened to her. And most mysteriously, she had a little girl in that photograph. There was one article in the Hindu back in 2008, which had this photo of her and uh, this little baby girl. And I kept thinking it's the matrilineal system. So that girl's descendants are members of the ex-royal family of Travancore. Where did they disappear? Because they didn't live in Trivandrum. The family that lived in Trivandrum was another branch from Setu Lakshmi Bai's sister, Setu Parvati Bai, who is the, let's say, antagonist of the book. Junior uh, Rani. The junior Rani. So <laughs> yeah. senior Rani and junior Rani. So what happened to the senior Rani's family? So, you know, the moment I started asking questions about Setu Lakshmi Bai, I started asking other people, you know, what happened to this lady? A lot of elders, including a great uncle in my family, who's now 99 years old, he said, oh, you know, if you ask questions about that, you're going to stumble on a lot of uh, mischievous material. You shouldn't go down that route. It's not a good story. Now, naturally, when you're 18 years old and when you're told not to do something, you're obviously going to do the exact opposite and start digging up what you're not supposed to dig up. So I think that's how I started asking questions. And initially, I came across some material. I got in touch over Facebook with one of her family members. They sent me a book they privately published containing all her letters and private papers. And once they sent this to me, I was fascinated by the story, fascinated by the tragedy, really, in many ways, and even by her personality, you know, the the kind of life arc she had. And I wrote, I think, at that time, with a basic sort of reading with some books and this material from the letters, etc. I got, I wrote a blog. I had, you know, in 2008, it was the age of blogs. And I had a blog that perhaps five people read, five people I knew uh, who were also interested in Kerala history. But this particular article about her, talking about her somewhat tragic life and career, and the way it ended on a very sad note, 
it brought me this barrage of trolling in 2008 2008 trolling wasn't a big deal yeah. but suddenly there was like a heap of messages comments under this blog saying how dare you write this this is all lies this is impossible and one even rather casteist remark by one man saying you know we were kings back in the day who belongs to that royal community not the family saying you know back in the day if you if you would have written something like this your head would have been chopped off and i was like you know at 18 i was like my god what is it about this woman that triggers such you know animosity and hatred why is it that telling her story as it is seems to provoke so much angst and hate from all these unknown people i've never met on the internet and who had never come to my blog before they heard that there was such an article on her that's when i started deciding that you know i decided to sort of start uh, digging up a, her her story a little more you know discovering more details trying to find out what exactly the story was and that started really in 2009 and took me till 2015 to finish the ivory throne and think, and, and yeah. did you decide at that point that you're going to write a book or was it just no like i was more interested in looking up the story but somewhere along the way it turned into a book because i realized there was no book on her i mean her granddaughter published this book of letters and so on but there was no biography as it were there was no travanco history written in a revisionist style you know most people may not know that you know in north india for example other parts of india travanco history is not really something you think about but in kerala it's a pretty big deal because that was kerala's premier princely state it had a major role in the culture and in the political evolution of the state a lot of the parties you know the rise of communism etc it's linked to a great extent uh, to travanco and the policies of the last divan of travanco so travanco was a big deal in kerala history so i was just you know keen to sort of fill this gap where this lady was concerned and that i think i think i wrote my first draft of the book by 2011 12 and frankly at that time i thought it was ready to publish i'm glad i didn't because it would have been a hideous book that would have sunk without a trace so it took another 3 and a half years to you know get uh, to beat it into shape to get more material to really uh, research and put the pieces together which took me to you know it, it, there's material from america which i couldn't find in india so there's this obscure uh, magazine that i was looking for a journal that covered specifically the princely states which was a massive source of information because every two weeks they had material on different princely states and what was happening couldn't find it in india couldn't find it in britain finally ended up finding it in america and uh, you know had to spend a bomb to acquire that material a lot from the british archives then uh, from the delhi archives the kerala state archives interviews with lots of people uh, you know because the protagonist and the antagonist both died in the 1980s which meant that people who knew them their children they were still alive at that time so i had to go talk to them uh, you know and it was interesting to sort of go through that journey for 5 6 years and and put together the story and since then you know that book has not only filled a gap i think to my great advantage in terms of sales etc any time anybody looks up kerala on amazon or flipkart or whatever this is the first book that pops up because there hasn't been a big mainstream book on kerala for a very long time there are academic books there are books in kerala but for a larger pan indian english reading audience there hasn't been that much uh, for a very long time so anybody who now wants a book on kerala history this sort of shows up as the first option they have and that's great for me in terms of sales and i'm glad that the book helped resurrect seetu lakshmi bai and put her back in uh, public imagination because she deserves to be there and the book's also been optioned i believe for uh, a potential web series web yeah. series so. people keep saying film but i think it's too big to be a film yeah, the, the drama is far too intense to cover it in one two hour film it would end up being a shoddy job if it's a film i think I yeah, can't really do yeah. justice to the story. And in contrast with uh, the books you've spoken about uh, in 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 our previous episodes, but the ones that you wrote after this, there are no marauding elephants here. There <laughs> are runaway elephants in yeah. one scene where somebody goes to a function and the elephants have run away. But there is much less bloodshed, but perhaps more uh, 
human drama. So did you want to be a historian before you actually set upon this quest or did setting upon this quest naturally make you a historian? Because yeah, I think history. it's the second way, which is that, you know, once I started the book, once I started doing my research, see, it also coincided with my master's degree in London. The fact of the matter was that I only persuaded my parents to let me go there because I wanted the archives. And you can't really tell your parents that, you know, you want them to spend a bomb and send you abroad uh, if you to write a book. No parent in India is going to allow that. So, uh, what was interesting was research methods we were taught for my master's program for the thesis, you know, how to understand the archives, how to negotiate libraries and so on. I could apply that almost immediately to my own research. And once I started doing that, you know, I had another career then. I used to work in, you know, parliament first. Then I worked in the British parliament for a while. Then I worked with the BBC for a while. But it was the book and then the success of the book that really got me thinking. And I was like, you know, this is something I'm passionate about. I am interested in history. I enjoy the research. I enjoy sitting in archives and libraries and discovering you know things and I enjoy also I think bringing to the fore marginalized stories all the I mean, both my first and my second book they're both about you know either figures who are marginalized or a region that is marginalized that doesn't get uh, the attention it perhaps deserves in terms of Indian history as we talk in general so I think that triggered this desire to keep focusing on history and now I've taken the plunge now I've become a full-time uh, writer and you know researcher so now there's no escaping with the the consequences of what I have brought upon myself so far it's worked out but I'm under no impression that this you know you never know what the future holds three successful books does not mean that your fourth or fifth or sixth will always be uh, a successful book so you have to be prepared for the worst, but I've decided to take that gamble and, you know, take that risk. No, in fact, whenever the subject of you has come up in my conversations with other people, all of them basically have the tone of how dare that scoundrel write three books before the age of 30. Has he even started shaving? <laughs> how do older historians uh, respond to uh, what in their eyes must be this young kid just coming up and churning out book after book? You know, older historians have strangely been very generous. See, one advantage is that Look at the books now. The first one won the Sahitya Academy's Yuva Puraskar. It was given by a panel of very distinguished scholars. And two years later, I actually ran into one of the jury members who told me who I was up against. And I'm not allowed to name the person, but it was very flattering to discover that, you know, I won despite that person being in the list and in the running for the award. Second book was not only, you know, critically acclaimed, it was also reviewed glowingly in a peer-reviewed academic journal. For me, I'm doing my PhD now. You know, I, I although I want to bridge the academic world with a larger audience, you always have this uh, fear you know, are you, are you somehow diluting historical research? Are you somehow, are you doing it in the way academics do it, etc.? So it's good to be in a peer-reviewed academic journal because that means that your work is passing. And this was Rebel Sultans. This was Rebel Sultans mm-hmm. in a journal called Studies in History. And it was reviewed by a University of Illinois professor. And I was actually taken aback. I had no idea there was a University of Illinois professor <laughs> reading my work. And even the praise, for example, the uh, on Rebel Sultans, the first book doesn't have any endorsements from any big names because that's not something I wanted at that time. Uh, the second book, my publishers were keen. So I said, look, you reach out to whoever you're interested in. So we'd reached out to Muzaffar Alam and he is a very senior scholar, you know, essentially the, the you know, the big name of, of North Indian history and Mughal history and even the Deccan. He's worked a lot with Sanjay Subramanian. And, uh, you know, you discover, I, I, he basically came back saying he was working on something so he wouldn't have time to go through the manuscript. And then... I'm not exaggerating. A day before we went to press, he emailed back saying he'd managed to read the manuscript and he would love to give her an endorsement for the book. For me, that was a great, you know, I felt really 
not only honored but also somewhat more confident because it's not easy for a muzaffar alam to sort of endorse your work he's a very senior scholar he's not the type to take uh, you know carelessly or lazily written history very seriously so that meant he appreciated it uh, then my publisher told me that they ran into rudrangsh mukherjee who's also a very big historian he appreciated the book and now for the our paperback edition i think he's giving us an endorsement as well so i think for me having these big historians sort of support my work and encourage it is uh, is something i i value a great deal and i think it going see you always make mistakes you're always you're always learning none of your works i think no historian can confidently say their work is 100% solid you're always learning things there are always going to be minor errors and omissions and slips and so on but you keep improving so i think it's good to have older historians sort of support that what where some opposition has come interestingly is from some of my contemporaries so a lot of my phd colleagues in london most of them i mean the ones from india at least they sort of frown upon this i don't know if it's a case of sour grapes or if it's simply because you know they're like no 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 you can't do this popular history thing it's a bad idea you know academia is where you can do it soberly properly this this making it engaging through writing and turn it into a storytelling uh, process is is very risky it's fraught with lots of problems and i agree it's fraught with problems but as you may have noticed with the first and the second the third not so much but the first and the second it's rich with footnotes i make sure that all my sources the footnotes themselves sometimes have essay length uh, material in them because i'm not trying to sort of cut down on the academic aspect of it if you read the footnotes it almost reads like it's part of a, an academic book it's just the main narrative that i try and make attractive in terms of writing some people of my age perhaps disapprove but you know because the older scholars who've established themselves and won their stripes and you know earned their place up there they've been supportive so far and for me i think that is you know it's a, it's a, it's a mark of confidence therefore even though my contemporaries may sometimes you know rant about me on facebook and i can see it right i can see that they like you know how they do this and things like that but you know i think it's good to know that older people support you so it gives you the strength and the conviction to carry on and also i don't really get the thing against popular history i mean the thing is as long as the history is solid why should it be a mark against it if it's written very well and therefore sells very well you know it's an indian thing here we don't have that much popular history by academics right. in the western world they always do it now for example uh, the same people who say that you should not be doing uh, popular history sunil khilnani is an academic you know he has a phd he used to be the head of the india institute in london which is where i'm doing my phd now now he's moved back to an american university he wrote this iconic book called the idea of india in the late 1990s he also did a book and i was his research assistant for that project called incarnations india through 50 lives so it's 50 personalities you've taken their profiles and you've tried to explain a broader indian history through that now neither he nor i are scholars on each of these people i mean you're taking a vk krishnamenon for example you're taking a a buddha for example i'm not a buddhist studies person neither is he uh, we're not great scholars on krishnamenon neither is you know dr kilnani but the thing is that does not preclude us from being able to sort of do a decent amount of research on it and write about it the argument that you have to be a, a, like a supreme expert on everything you touch is i think risky because that i mean it, it doesn't hold water western academics and he works in the western world which is why for them also doing popular history is not at all a surprising thing i mean right now there's supriya gandhi who's just brought out a book on darashuka the the tragic mughal prince and there are lots of what if what ifs and you know romantic stories around darashuka and she's done at least from every uh, you know bit i've read so far she's done a very good job of negotiating that inaccessible attractive 
language. So the thing is, Western academics and people in the Western world make the effort to do popular history. Here, however, academics have not, uh, I think, reached out that much into the popular audience. And another crop of historians has grown up who want to proactively touch and reach the popular mass. And there's that break, therefore, which naturally, you know, breeds its own insecurities and competition and rivalries and so on. Historians are also human beings. It's not like we are about ego clashes and jealousies and rivalries and fears and things like that. That's very much a part of anything, any human enterprise. And that, I think, exists more in India now. But, you know, as more and more historians do make the effort, academic historians do make the effort to write for a lay audience, I think it's a constructive thing. On the one hand, you can't complain that history is being perverted by politicians. On the other hand, do nothing about it. And if you want to convince the masses, go out to the masses. Go out to the intelligent reading audience. You know, go out and reach out beyond your seminar circuit. I think there is value in that. I think, you know, the fighting for good history happens at different levels. It's not merely about, uh, you know, sitting in the seminar circuit and issuing papers that you and I will read, but not anybody beyond that. That has its value. It is from that that people like me benefit. We learn a great deal from there, but someone has to also connect it for people who are not reading the seminar papers. No, and also so much of uh, the politics of the present and indeed so much of the present period is influenced by narratives about the past, which makes it all the more important that we examine those uh, more deeply and uh, challenge uh, you know, loosely held uh, uh, assumptions about the past. And I, I was sort of just thinking aloud yesterday and it struck me that, you know, many people call this current government a conservative government. But to me, in one sense, they are not conservative, they are radical. Because I think what is inherent in Indian society is the fact that we are so assimilative. We take influences from everywhere. We are actually incredibly tolerant. And that's almost the DNA of uh, our society. And that is something that the current government, by trying to overturn and by trying to paint the world in binaries, is actually performing a radical act which goes against what our society is. And it, it struck me again, and I mean, this is a truism, but it struck me again while reading your book that Kerala is actually an exemplar of this. In the sense that Kerala was one, probably one of the first globalized places in the world. Christianity came to Kerala before it hit Europe, as you point out in your book. Early Islam came here and it came here peacefully. In the lifetime of the Prophet. In the lifetime of the Prophet. Tell me a little bit about um, a sort of, uh, um, uh, you know, like you, you quote uh, writer Pierre de Laval in 1607. Uh, he writes, um, quote, there is no place in all of India where contentment is more universal than at Calicut, both on account of the fertility and beauty of the country and of the intercourse with the men of all religions who live there in free exercise of their own religion. It is the busiest and most full of all traffic and commerce in the whole of India. It has merchants from all parts of the world and of all nations and religions by reason of the liberty and security accorded uh, to them there. Stop quote. And, and part of this obviously is because it's a port. Right. And ports have always attracted foreigners. See, the idea of the foreigner as an alien is not something that port cultures or coastal cultures have in general, because trade is the ecosystem that preserves these societies. Now, look at a lot of this is also linked to geography. Now, Kerala is the sliver of the Indian coast. It's cut off by the Western Ghats from Tamil Nadu, etc. It's not easy access. You can access through Palakkad, which is uh, up north. And then in the south, there's via Kanyakumari district, there's another area, there's another way to access Kerala. Or you will access it via the coast. But for the most part, Kerala sort of cut out from South Indian, from the peninsula as it were, which is why even when Vijayanagar was this great powerful empire in the South that practically conquered almost all of the empire, it never really conquered Kerala because it was, Kerala was sort of its own zone. But it was also a very small area, which meant local economy was not enough to sustain any kind of grand 
civilization or any kind of grand extraordinarily wealthy society that wealth came from trade it was trade and pepper and calico calico comes from calicut fabric you know that kind of trade that actually generated money for kerala's kings even the idea of kingship in kerala was very different from tamil nadu north india kings were not kings who had large standing armies and uh, things like that kings headed an, a network really of feudal lords again linked to geography you know there are 44 rivers in kerala and it, we're talking about a time when navigating all this is extremely difficult you know moving around is extremely difficult which means that a king will only control his capital and the immediate surroundings and a lot of it is based on feudal levies and things like that kings did not so i mean they they had land revenue but they didn't really depend very much on land revenue because trade brought them in multiples of what they earned through land so kings had an incentive to promote trade which meant what promoting new people new colors of people new new people of different faiths they had no issues with that because their livelihood depended on it you know none of this comes from entirely like noble thoughts it comes because you have gains from it so arabs the zamorin of calicut builds uh, you know builds up the city of calicut which becomes one of the great cities of the trading world one of the reasons is that other rivals of his have colon uh, and other places where the jews and the christians are are dominant the arabs are sort of looking for a place that's when the calicut is emerging as a new ruler and he says hold on you know i've got this access to the sea i'll give you very good terms of trade i'll give you honesty i won't cheat you i'll give you very uh, i mean overall make make up a setting that invites trade and commerce to his uh, to the city and that that formula works the arabs start gravitating towards this the chinese start gravitating towards it and it's based on certain conditions that the city thrives naturally there is a cultural impact on this on the, on the on the area itself altogether the chinese bring in you know, the malayalis eat we cook a lot of our food in what we call china chatti china is china it's a kind of utensil that came from china there are these legends in kerala where there's this nambudri brahmin for example called pandamburatha nambudri and how he you know keeps a chinese merchant's treasure safe for a very long time and how the chinese merchant is very happy so you're meeting a chinese foreigner with a kerala orthodox nambudri brahmin in one of kerala's oldest legends because the foreigners always present in kerala's legends islam is present to the extent that there is this wonderful story called parai petta pandirukulam which is the it's it's about a dalit woman a paraya woman of the practically one of the lowest castes who marries the sage vararuchi uh, through this adventure of their own and they have 12 children the 12 children includes one daughter from which a major matrilineal naya family is descended the kavalapara mupil nayas but it all, also includes a brahmin the meratol agnihotri it also includes an, a carpenter Uh, called Perindachan it also includes a, a dalit man who actually brings every time the siblings meet for feast this is the man who brings beef the orders of a cow to this feast uh, to a very brahmin brother and the woman and all are present there's also a muslim son and there's a son who's a deity so so these 12 children represent different castes different religions even and different ways of life there's orthodox brahmanical vegetarian life there's somebody who eats the orders of a cow everybody's represented in that one story of a, a brahmin man and a paraya woman producing the 12 uh, castes and the, the the 12 children and so on these legends are basically hinting at something of great value uh, there are texts like the kerlolpatti which is considered the the premier text that explains the origins of kerala it's not really a historically sound text it was written somewhere in the 17th century some say even in the 18th century there's already foreign wars referred to in that with the portuguese and people like that depending on which version of the kerlolpatti you read the oldest political legend of kerala is about this king called Cheraman Perumal uh who converts to Islam goes off to Mecca 
So, you know, in the oldest political legend of Kerala, there is already Islam and there's already Arabia. So, this is the ecosystem in which it works. It was easier to cross the Arabian Sea and reach Kerala than for a Malayali to travel by land all the way to Kashi or wherever else in North India. The sea made access to other countries easier than it did to other parts of the Indian subcontinent. So, that is why Kerala evolved its own culture. The funny thing is, despite exposure with all these foreigners, it retained many of its original tribalistic elements also. A lot of tribal gods have survived. Our Kava culture, the groves have survived with what are essentially pre-Brahmin, pre-Sanskritic gods. Uh, the matrilineal system survived. For some reason, despite all this exposure to patriarchal families and you know patriarchal religions and tra- travelers and traders, matrilineal stuck very strong in the royal families in the landed communities of Kerala and even in some very prominent lower caste groups. Uh, so, you know, Kerala retained some sense of its independent identity. It retained a certain, you know, image of itself, all the same constantly ex- interacting with the world. For me, it's a great example. For example, right now we're thinking about Indianness, right? There are ways to retain your Hinduness. There are ways to retain your Sanskriticness. There's ways to retain your Indianness, as it were, within whatever cultural parameters you're comfortable with, but also to engage with the world without feeling like it's some kind of threat, without feeling that foreign ideas and foreigners and anything that comes from outside is a bad thing. You can do both. It's not an either or. You know, our history is full of the and factor. It's both. You don't need to choose. In fact, I had a great episode a year and a half back with Vikram Doctor on Indian food, which is basically about how all Indian food essentially came from outside. There's very little that is originally Indian and yet all of it is Indian. Yeah, sure, it came from outside, but we made it our own. And a couple of thoughts strike me from what you just said. One is the mistake I often make and I caution others against making is Thinking of India as that mental, you know, you have that mental map in your head that, oh, this is India and there on the south, there's Tamil Nadu, Kerala, and these are all parts of this whole. But as you point out, uh, you know, this mental map is a relatively recent construction. You actually have a Kerala, if you look at it geographically, which is separated from the rest of what we now call India. And as you point out, it's more plausible for a lot of trade to happen over the seas than, say, for a Kerala Hindu to go to Kashi. The other important thing that this syncreticness of Kerala illustrates to me is the value of globalization and free markets that they lead to an open society necessarily. Because, you know, if you are trading in a free market, it is in your interest to trade with as wide an economic network as you can. You will discriminate less, which is not to say not at all, but you will discriminate less, you will be more open. And, you know, that's the key to an open society. You cannot have an open society without also having having open trade and um, free markets. But it's interesting that despite all of this, another thing that comes through very strongly in your writing and in the Ivory Throne is that despite this openness and this globalization and all of the and even the matrilineal nature of society, which we'll discuss after this, there are these very stark divisions which are most clearly exemplified in the solidity and the rigidity of the caste system, which is perhaps in many ways worse in Kerala than other parts of India. What explains that contradiction? Tell me a bit about that. You know, Kerala was called famously the lunatic asylum of India by Swami Vivekananda. Because <laughs> he knew caste, he had seen the caste system. And then he came to Kerala where he saw not only untouchability, but also things like unapproachability. There are distances certain castes had to keep from other castes, which are superior castes. Because even their shadow, even their breath, even passing nearby could pollute these. I think you pointed out some castes cannot 
cannot get within 90 min- uh, yeah. meters of a brahman and 50 meters of a nayar yeah yeah there are there are rules like that about all of these things there's even in some parts of kerala i think in my by my family comes from this caste doesn't exist but there is a caste that was only allowed to come out at night they're not allowed to see daylight and be seen by other people during the daylight because even seeing them no matter at what distance can can pollute you so there's this kind of chaos and you know madness also in kerala society uh you find this in in some ways i think part of it is also because of waves of immigration now kerala jayajan from the beginning says that kerala is a country of immigrants so the story is parshuram brought all the brahmins here and gave this land to the brahmins but at first the brahmins had to discover that the land was completely occupied by ferocious nagas now you can read that as serpents or you can read that as local tribes and these nagas were then uh, pushed these brahmins out the brahmins had to come back again and then make peace with the nagas except and why is it that old kerala houses have groves like in the house one corner will be set apart in the compound as a grove where it's allowed to run wild and anything is allowed to grow and there'll be a naga statue in that it's some kind of an old god that existed and the brahmins basically accepted that god so as the waves of immigrants come in you find an increasing amount of temple construction that's how a region that was largely forests and not agrarian yet becomes increasingly an agrarian society that agrarian system seems to be have been led by a lot of these upper castes which is basically the brahmins and the nayars and those who tilted towards the future upper caste agrarian society meant wealth wealth meant cornering resources and becoming more powerful which meant that people who originally lived there which is the later dalit castes of kerala the koravas the pulayas the pulayas are over an agrestic slave caste but if you talk to them the older members of the community this is not written down anywhere but they have their legends of pulaya kings of pulaya chieftains of people who had forts and so on in their community but these were all i think forest communities at some point and they were slowly enslaved as urbanization and agrarianism built up thanks to the immigrant uh, communities that came in over different periods of time that's how the caste system picks up it's different groups that arrived at different times sort of putting them into different boxes but all the same the upper castes had a lot to gel with for example in a brahmin family only if there are three sons only the eldest is allowed to marry a brahmin woman because that way you only have one line in which succession happens in the brahmin community which means your property stays intact it doesn't get partitioned so if all three brothers marry brahmin women and have brahmin kids there are three heirs you have to split the property so if the only the eldest produces a brahmin heir the other two brothers marry non brahmin women so they go and marry these matrilineal women from matrilineal communities so that may be a kshatriya princess or it may be a shudra nay and remember shudra does not mean low caste in the sense shudra still savarna which is in the varna system so brahmins in kerala said it was brahmins a few upgraded nayars who wore the sacred thread as officially kshatriyas and then uh, everyone else was a shudra but the shudras were powerful landed communities so they would marry the shudra women also with the result that in the next generation you may have one son who's the brahmin say the temple priest the second cousin would have married would have, would be the son of this princess or whatever and the local raja the third brother's son would be the local warlord or nayar chieftain or nayar general or whatever so all three are cousins they belong to different castes one is a brahmin one is a kshatriya one is the warrior and they therefore ensure that that upper caste prerogative and power they have is preserved so the caste system was extremely brutal to those who are avarna out of that system but the savarnas made sure they were constantly gelling with each other through intermarriage and through links of not only economic exchange but also the exchange of blood In fact, there's an amusing uh, chapter in the Ivory Throne about how you mentioned, you know, upgraded nayars about how Martandu Verma, who sort of resurrected the House of Travancore, as it were, was an upgraded nayar. Nayar that for respectability, they did various rituals and all that, so he could call himself a Shatria. Yeah, and it's so, not just uh, him. A lot of and the, the funniest is there are there are families that got stuck midway. 
like they were in the process of upgrading and then colonialism hits and they never quite complete the process so usually people think that anybody in kerala with the surname varma you know your surname really is a kshatriya like a, who belongs to one of these palace communities but there is a gradation within that so you have at the beginning the highest kshatriya in kerala is the kochan raja because his sacred thread is the oldest in fact there is this funny story where martanda varma has defeated the kochi raja and they have signed a treaty and they you know after they've done everything and they they go and take a dip in the pond because you know in those days that's a cultural thing you go and bathe together so then they they take a dip in the pond and this martandorma looks at the kochi raja sacred thread and says it's really filthy it's all like turned black with dirt and he says you know can't you clean this look at mine it's so pristine and white and so on and the kochi raja says you know my poonula my sacred thread is a little old as opposed to yours which is new the idea being that martandorma is just a recent upgrade into the kshatriya community whereas the kochi raja has been there for so long that even his sacred thread has turned dirty so there are families like the kochi raja then there are later people for example the travancore family and its networks which managed to gain the upgrade in the 17th century and the 18th century then there's another family called the tekumkur and vadkumkur varmas they have the surname of varma but they don't have the sacred thread so they've literally been stuck in limbo where they're technically still nayas but they've managed to get the surname of the kshatriyas then there are lower people like the caste of the zamorin of calicut the zamorins never thought it was worthwhile to go through this process one tried and decided it was too expensive to try and get the sacred thread so they're stuck in another subgroup called samantas which are also neither nayas fully nor fully kshatriyas somewhere stuck in the middle so there is this this process is fascinating because there are families you can specifically identify that try to upgrade themselves within the last 3 3 and a half centuries and got stuck at different positions in the caste system the british come and they, after that there's no moving up or down then you're stuck because the british have are cataloging everything and creating like manuals and so on so whatever box you were found in in the 18th century became your final box and the british of course are very good at putting you in these boxes for their own reasons of classification because, yeah, because they're they trying to figure understand. everything out yeah. <laughs> and then those boxes they put you in become the fixed narrative and yeah. like we've discussed this in the past but there's, there's no way episode, to right? generalize for example you know you find that a lot of this privilege comes from who can sit and eat with a brahmin for example now nambudri brahmins in kerala are extremely orthodox now the zamorin of calicut does not have a sacred thread he's not technically a full kshatriya but he has the privilege of eating with nambudris nayars in general cannot cook for nambudris or feed them or sit and eat with them but one particular naya family the kavalapara mupil nair he has the privilege of eating with brahmins now within this there are ranges a punul or a sacred thread wearing kshatriya can sit next to a brahmin and eat in the same line someone like the zamorin can't do what is called panti bhojanam he can do sakshi bhojanam sakshi bhojanam is to sit in the same room but not in the same line the caste system is so intricate you know there are people who can sit with there are people who can sit in the same room there are people who can sit outside there are people who are not even allowed on the threshold my great grandfather was a school headmaster he had these agrestic laborers who belonged to dalit communities they were not allowed to look at the house but because of kerala's educational system which had built up from the 19th century there were pulaya dalit teachers in his school and every year as the headmaster he gave a grand feast for people in our house and it's fascinating to hear from my grandmother that even in the 40s the rule was very simple all the nayas could sit in the veranda outside the kitchen area and they would be served their food there on leaves the christians etc sat at a lower level because they were not allowed you know to sit inside the house so they sat at a lower level on one of the steps and that's where uh, they would eat and the pulaya dalit teachers they would be served their food near the house which the, the laborers were not allowed near the house but because they were teachers they were allowed near the house but their food was served in the cowshed so the feast is happening in different spaces because each, because each space has a caste related connotation it becomes extremely intricate and extremely complicated in kerala and that you know that it also reveals a lot about the caste 
system. The received wisdom we have that the caste was Brahmin, Kshatriya, Vaishya, Shudra, and these were the four castes, etc. There was no such pan-Indian caste system. Every region, every place, it had its own jati system. The Varna system was just a theoretical construct. And it was also uh, an instrument of manipulation. You could bribe Rajas to support various causes by promising them a higher Varna. And you know, that was it was it, till the British came and looked up these texts and thought the texts held reality. These were not considered real categories, uh, you know, for people in their everyday lived lives. Their everyday lived lives were much more complex. And I guess one could say that your location in the caste system could be gauged by your location while at mealtimes. Is this stuff that you kind of discovered with this granularity while you were doing research for your book? Or is it something that filtered down to you anyway? I mean, no, it was in the course of the, the book. Because, you know, once, although the book is primarily about this wonderful feuding, like uh, these feuding sisters of Travancore, these royal women and that court intrigue and the Darbar politics and all of that, and the British and how they intervene and all this. In the process, because Setu Rashmi also ruled, there's policy, there's decisions on social reform. Looking up these is what led me into these aspects. And I found that it was fascinating. That's why the book took me six years. Because I wanted to not only weave in the palace gossip and you know all that was happening in a dramatic sense in the palace, but also these larger dynamics of a changing world. Because once colonialism came in and independence is approaching, that period is extremely fascinating between, I mean, where colonialism is slowly starting to recede and fade and Indian nationalism is growing, how are royal families, you know, placed at that time in a very complicated position where they're not sure which way the future is turning. So at that time to study things with this greater granularity was, I thought, a, a very interesting, you know, prospect. And what you do very well in your book is that you set up the narrative by talking about all the tumult in the region we now call uh, Kerala, but, you know, is this Calicut and this Cochin and uh, this Travancore and all that for maybe 300 years before the British finally come, you know, from the time the Portuguese come to Calicut and they have an awkward time getting through. And then the subsequent battles, uh, uh, Martanda Varma, uh, you know, uh, and, and more power to Varmas, reviving uh, the fate of Travancore and then colonialism coming in and everything kind of settling down to this default thing where the British are now in charge. Just take me through a little bit of the tumult of that period. You know, it is a very bloody period in the sense that colonialism, so we were talking about the Arab traders in Calicut and so on. They had a wonderful equation going on for a long time. Then you find that the Chinese withdraw from the international seas, which is a huge thing. It's not given its due. But if the Chinese had continued to be in the Arabian Sea, their ships were 10 times larger than these European ships. The Chinese had the capacity to kick Europeans back to Europe and, you know, retain control of the of the Arabian Sea and trade in general. And were they interested in colonizing others like the Europeans were or were they just happy to trade? I think they were happy to trade. They had a few outposts here and there and they had a certain, let's say, network of influence. So the whole history of the subcontinent would have been very different, different if the Chinese yeah. had remained. But the Chinese became isolationist for some their own internal reasons at that time. So the Chinese withdrew. So it was left, the, the seas were left only to the Arabs. Now you have the Europeans coming in with their new technologies and their new angst to sort of uh, take charge of it. They try and come and negotiate with these land rulers in Kerala, but they find that they can't beat these rulers on land. And the rulers have a good deal with the Arabs. So why should they entertain these white men from what they think is a barbaric country? They thought the Portuguese were barbaric. You know, that's what the Zamorin thought. He thought of them as barbarians. It's only later that colonizers started calling Indians barbarians. First, it was the other way around. Then these guys discover that they actually have more power at sea, the Portuguese and the Europeans in general. So they start, you know, essentially it's piracy and terrorism at sea. They start sinking ships. They start preventing trade from happening. They start, you know, playing party pooper till these Rajas are forced to come to the table. 
now this unleashes a whole set of new dynamics because now what's happening is the old powers like the zamorin and the his networks with the arabs they start fading and these european companies come up and the european companies have an active interest in promoting smaller less ambitious rulers like the zamorin using them as puppets and building up their own profile in kerala that's where you find the kochi raja comes up the kochi raja's career for the last 5 centuries has always been has entirely been being the puppet in the hands of one european company or the other the crown of kochi which is now kept in a palace in tripunathara in a museum if you look at the crown there is the emblem of the dutch east india company on it because they made the crown and gave it to the kochi raja even his crown has is inscribed with the company's logo. mark and a logo yeah. because he is not entirely free now what happens in the south of kerala which is you know travancore at that time is essentially a political backwater it's a small sliver between kanyakumari and trivandrum nobody cares very much about it the family is not even considered fully malayali they're very exposed to tamil society so they're not considered de facto shuddha malayalis now this prince discovers that this chaos to quote from a line from game of thrones chaos is a ladder you can <laughs> use that to your own advantage what does he do he starts getting weapons from the east india company the english are still not a major factor it's the dutch at by this time we're talking about the 18th century the portuguese are displaced by the dutch and now the dutch are in control and the english are about to displace the dutch so martandorma acquires weapons etc from the english he gets a, uh, a prisoner of war from the dutch to come and start training his armies in a modern uh, western style he starts getting mercenaries from tamil nadu and does something unheard of in kerala which is to start conquering territory earlier when kings defeated other kings they just made them vassals they did not conquer they did not annex territory very rarely did that happen martandor makes this his chief uh, political uh, you know activity and he ends up conquering everything up to kochi but the timing is also important because suddenly communication is easier the earlier hassles that existed say in the 15th and 16th century no longer apply in the 18th century things are moving much faster the world is becoming a faster place the english companies are facilitating that new weapons and technologies are coming in new forms of fortification are coming in and he is reaching out to people beyond the kerala ecosystem he at one point reaches out to hyderabad asking for assistance so you know he builds up a new modern state in a modern changing universe he uses the chaos that colonialism and early colonialism is unleashing in the indian subcontinent and uses that to his advantage to create the state of travancore that is how he he sort of you know turns a rather sad declining situation to his advantage benefits from it now the funny thing is he's also a hindu king with aspirations of his own so first he has to upgrade himself in caste because If you read Martandorma's story what is fascinating is that he was still then first among equals royal blood was not sacred his nobility was constantly trying to murder him when he was a prince because they don't like him he decides therefore that royal blood must become more sacred people must hesitate to drop or sort of stab royalty and you know spill their blood so he decides that that means your caste has to be upgraded and a certain awe has to be built around royalty all kings do it the delhi sultans did it you use protocol and state and court decorum and culture etc to make yourself look extremely powerful and extremely let's say uh, otherworldly superhuman in some ways so matandorma says i need a, a caste upgrade he gets brahmins now all the nambudri brahmins in kerala are in northern kerala so he's not they don't actually live here but he has to find a way to woo them and give him a caste upgrade the process is the ritual called hiranyagarbha where they construct a cow made entirely out of gold the king goes in through the cow sits inside the cow they chant mantras of birth so and then he emerges from under the tail of the cow and now he's reborn he's now reborn as a kshatriya who can wear the sacred thread part of the soma vamsha or uh, the the house of the moon etc etc so he gains first of all his caste upgrade The other thing is once you've got a caste upgrade you can now no longer let your nayars who are technically shudras you know they can't come and touch you and serve you so you need brahmins to come and surround you and sort of have this brahminical decorous system around you 
Now, as I said, all the Nambudris are in North Kerala. So what does he do? He imports, you know, Tamil Brahmins by the thousands into Kerala. Gives them various incentives to come to his state, which is free feeding houses, lots of privileges and benefits, etc. So the Tamil Brahmins come in and they start surrounding the royal family. And then he creates a protocol around the royal family, which is even the language used for royalty has to be highly artificial. It's essentially like public relations now. Politicians know that on the one hand, they have to be in touch with the masses, etc. But the masses must never think of them as ordinary because familiarity breeds content. So Martin Varma knows this rule and he's doing this in an 18th century format, which is that, you know, even as I said, language is artificial. So when a normal Malayali like myself, when I wake up in the morning, the first thing we do is palladekala, which is to brush your teeth. For royalty, the word is tirumuttavilaka, the cleaning of the royal pearls, because royalty doesn't have teeth, it has pearls. <laughs> you know, when when a raja or a rani goes for a bath, it is not called a kuli, which is what we would use as, as a regular Malayali, that would be the word. They go for a pallinirata, the royal frolic in water. When they eat, it's called amrudeta, which is eating amrit or nectar. You're not eating normal food. When uh, they cry, it's called trikannir varkuva, you know, the royal like uh, water is emerging from its eyes and things like that. Then when the queen of Travancore gets pregnant, you know, the proclamation is never she's pregnant. Pregnancy is not a word you use for queens and royalty. The word is tiruvayar vanu, the royal womb is occupied. <laughs> and then when the queen delivers the baby, it's tiruvayar orinju, the royal womb is vacated because queens don't do such human things as give birth and get pregnant. And when a, when a Maharaja of Travancore is on his deathbed, they find a Tamil Brahmin and they get this Tamil Brahmin to embrace the dying Raja. What is he doing? He's handing over his sins to the Brahmin so he can get moksha and go straight to, you know, uh, whatever, heaven or whatever. And the Brahmin is paid 10,000 rupees, taken to the border of Travancore and, you know, unceremoniously kicked out to disappear with the sins forever. Uh, you know, and when the king dies, finally, it's called Nardaningi. He's ended ruling his rule in this Nada, this kingdom. He's now moved to the other kingdom, the heavenly kingdom to rule that. So even the language is this highly artificial vocabulary is constructed around the royal family to reinforce the idea that these people are so special. They're so wonderful. They're so not like you and me. That is to be constantly regenerated and constantly done. The irony is he ends up creating what, and Travancore consciously called itself a Hindu state in the 19th century, called itself the Hindu state of Travancore. But how was the Hindu state created? With East India Company arms, by a Dutch mercenary who trained its forces, by Tamil mercenary armies, and by a king who only after he did all this, using all these instruments of modernity, he also used Brahminical culture to Sanskritize and to make himself the Sanskritic Indian king. But that Sanskritism was backed by forces that were unleashed by colonialism. It was backed by forces that were entirely modern in vintage and not ancient by any stretch. It's optics. It's really it optics. positioning. Constructing your ancient, unbroken, pure Kshatriya lineage was a very modern enterprise. <laughs> right. No, and, and of course, you know, talking of these elaborate rituals and all that in your book, there's a very long uh, description and just reading it made me tired and want to dry myself with a towel of uh, the young Setu Lakshmi Bai, I think, having a bath and the ritual it involved. Yeah. And it is so incredibly elaborate. I think everything would take two hours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and what kind of strikes me also about Martan Varma is that he's a very interesting character in that he seems to combine uh, a medieval brutality with an almost modern sense of real politic. And so I'll just read out a couple of quotes from your book that give a sense of that because I found this quite fascinating. Uh, one is, of course, uh, you know, your other books have tons of violence uh, in them. <laughs> this one doesn't have so much, but uh, still, this is... A glimpse. <laughs> this, this is a glimpse, yeah. Uh, uh, and uh, what happens after he uh, discovers a conspiracy in his uh, quote. 
quote soon enough an evidence fell into the raja's hands of a conspiracy at court he had the pilamar arrested summarily and presented proof of their perfidy in what was unprecedented instead of chastising the nobles by demoting their powers but otherwise leaving them unharmed Martanda Varma ordered their immediate execution their properties were attached and their women and children sold into slavery with not a hint of mercy or sympathy and thus perished 42 noble houses of the realm obliterating internal opposition from the raja's path and ringing the death knell of feudalism in the region uh stop quote very game of thrones style mm-hmm. and, and and the other quote is about when he's dying and and you write quote on his deathbed in 1758 he issued seven injunctions for political survival to his heirs the most crucial of which was that the friendship existing between the english east india company and travancore should be maintained at any risk and that full confidence should always be placed in the support and aid of that honorable association stop quote and there is a hint of practicality and like i mean i don't know whether it comes from an understanding of what a force east india company can be or maybe it's just recognition that his successors aren't as brilliant and enterprising as him but it sets a tone for what is to happen in the centuries to come it does because without the british the kingdom could not have survived you know the the brutality as you mentioned is actually quite striking because there are still fisher families outside trivandrum there are villages where they call fair fishermen valutta you know villages valutta means fair the idea being these people are descended from these upper caste nayar women who martandorma sold into slavery oh. what did he do why is he doing that because by giving up these women and making them eat with and live with fishermen you are forever reducing their caste position they can never bounce back from something like that killing a family member killing all the men the women can still have babies in that family the vamsha still survives but you demote them in caste you completely make them important there's no way they can come back and harm you there are so many stories in fact there's even a story in, if you go to trivandrum next to the padmanabha swami temple there is this pond called the padmatirtham it's a huge pond massive tank really the legend goes that it wasn't originally so big next to that one of these courtiers had his huge mansion and the way martandorma once he defeats his various enemies what he does is it's called kolam thonduga in malayalam you not only destroy the house you turn that spot into a pond and fill it with water so that any sign of a house having been there completely disappears from local and public memory so get rid of the lineage get rid of even the the land and the property on which these people actually lived and suddenly these people cease to exist as far as the future is concerned like they they no longer exist as even a concept for other rebels to rally around and sort of make them a focus uh, you know for any kind of rebellion against the king you see that even with politicians now why is it that the you know politicians always want to delegitimize somebody else you know you delegitimize your rival because you have to make sure they become completely important nobody should be able to rally around them because they've been completely sort of stripped of any kind of uh, legitimacy in the political system and i guess painting have. them as anti national is the easiest way to do that now, you know just now there's a politician who said oh maybe we should send uh, the actual correct information on the ca to the citizenship amendment act to rahul gandhi in italian all of this is suggesting yeah. what that he's illegitimate he doesn't belong here it's trying to negate this person's right or even his claim to be here and saying that no you are you know you're not a factor at all and all of this is about the optics as much as it is about politics and interestingly you'd imagine that you know one reads about martanda varma's uh, brutality and all of that and you see all the violence raging and you'll think oh okay it's a typical patriarchal society there must be toxic masculinity all over and yet and yet tell me a little bit about uh, sort of the matrilineal nature of uh, kerala society and how it sort of came to be and what form it took through these centuries so the thing is people often say matriarchal it's mm. not matriarchal it's linear matrilineal 
because uh, it, at the end of the day, it's the men who actually hold uh, a lot of power as well. It's not like the men are completely divested of influence. The only change is, to put it simplistically, the family is not man, wife and children. It is woman, her brother and her children. So the focus is the woman. The, the owner is the woman. So in the Zamorin of Calicut's family, the eldest female, even if she's a 12-year-old girl and the Zamorin himself is 70 and he's her grandfather's age, he's a granduncle of hers, he will still bow to her and call her Amma, which is mother. Because a woman is the technical owner of the property. She is the head of the family. In, in Travancore, similarly, the Raja's wife is only called Ammachi. Ammachi means mother of his highness's children. She is not queen, neither are his children uh, royalty. They are uh, normal, ordinary people. So, for instance, uh, one of the Maharajas of Travancore, let's say uh, this one who died in 1920 for his full title is His Highness Sri Padmanabha Dasa, Vanchipala, Sri Moolam Dirinal, Damavarma, Kulushekara, Kiritapati, Manne Sultan, Maharaj Raja Ramaraj Bahadur, Shamsher Jang. And then, of course, there are his English titles. But his son is simply Mr. Velayudhan Tambi. And you can add a Shri, which is given to them. Perhaps to his great court. relief. <laughs> That's all he is. But Tambi, which is a surname, means brother. So you're saying this person is like a brother to the royal family, but he is not a Tamburan, which means he's not a royal himself. He's a relative of the royal family. So the king's son is a mister. The king has a string of titles. The king's son is always a mister. And the king's wife is also a missus. So uh, a Maharaj of Kuchin, for example, had this very powerful wife. He died in 1932. The wife was never in Maharani. She was always called, his name was Ramavarma. She was called Lady Ramavarma. She was never called Rani Parukutinetya or whatever her name was. She's called Lady Ramavarma. In his English title as Sir Ramavarma, his wife could be Lady Ramavarma. But in his family title of Raja, the Rani ship went to his sister as per the matrilineal system. And the sister's kids ascended And the sister's the kids are the heirs. Heirs, again, you, I mean, people often simplistically say it's the man's nephew who succeeds him. There is no such rule that says the nephew has to succeed him. The next oldest person in the matrilineal joint family is the ruler. That may be your brother. A nephew who's older than a, a brother, that nephew will rule first. Even though he's technically a nephew in terms of relationship, if the nephew is somehow older, the nephew has the, the first claim to the throne, only then the other uncle who's younger. So age is the determining factor for both the male as well as the, the this female. This is possibly the origin of fudging birth certificates. It did not happen in UP Bihar uh, sports teams. <laughs> ah, you have to do it. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, so let's put it in the context of the Travancore royal family. The favorite analogy I give is through some of these court rituals. So the Maharani of Travancore, Setu Lakshmi Bai, for example, she is the Maharani. Her husband is only called the consort. He's not even usually called husband. He's just called the consort. The consort cannot sit in the presence of his wife unless she gives him permission. He can't call his wife by name. Till this husband of hers died in 1976, he always referred to his wife as Her Highness. He would ask his grandchildren, where is Her Highness? He'd never say, where's your grandmother? He'd say, where is Her Highness? Because he was always aware that her position was superior to him. Uh, when they, you know, she was considered a great reformer because in the 1910s, she started traveling in the same car with her husband. Her uncle was scandalized. He said, he may be your husband, but he's your subject. He cannot be seen seated next to you because to sit next to somebody signifies equality. The queen's husband has no right to sit next to her. He has to follow in a smaller car. Uh, back in the day, you know, they were not allowed to live in the same palace. The queen's husbands lived in these smaller bungalows, really, attached to the palace. And they were summoned to the royal bedchamber whenever the queens wished. And that was the, the arrangement. Uh, usually, after marriage, etc., even when they had, uh, you know, let's use the polite word of sexual congress, even when they, were, when they had to sleep with each other, it was astrologers who decided when Shani was in the right place and Venus was in the right place and things. And the like consummation that. of the wedding, yeah, basically. The consummation of the wedding. Uh, uh, and, you know, for the initial phase, so that you make sure a good heir is born. 
these husbands were not allowed to die in the palace. You know, only members of the royal family can die in the palace. Husbands are not members of the royal family. So usually if they're dying, they, they could even be lifted with their deathbed and taken to die elsewhere in a public building or a private building of their own, not in the palace. And the wife and the children, the Maharani and her children will not attend the man's funeral. He may be your father, he may be your husband, but he's a subject of the state. And royalty does not attend the funerals of private citizens of the state. That is how the system works. For Maharaja's wives also, the Amitshis, they are technically private citizens of the state. They are wives of the Maharaja. And many Maharajas are deeply in love with their wives. There's one who died in the mid-19th century. Technically, his wife is a nobody. She has no state recognition. Uh, she has some pensions and you know honors, etc. But she has no official recognition from the Darbar as, as a member of the royal family. But when she dies, this man starts fasting and doing lots of religious ceremonies, etc. And three months later, he himself dies because this is all too much for him to take. Uh, you know, there's there's uh, another Raja who dies, whose wife, first wife dies very young in childhood birth and this man for the next 17-18 years he doesn't marry because he can't somehow give up the memory of his first wife legally and technically in the official documents the Maharaja has no wife uh, even the ritual of marriage in Kerala among matrilineal communities you have to all you have to do is hand over a cloth you light a lamp put a red silk and a cloth a munda and you hand it over to the lady if she accepts you're married if she throws it in your face, you're not married and divorce is very easy. All you have to do is, frankly, my ex-boss got in trouble for saying this, but it is often said in Naya families that to tell a husband not to come back, all you have to do is keep his things outside and, you know, keep his shoes outside or keep his uh, spittoon outside or his walking stick outside and he gets the clue. Don't come back to this house. That is as simple as divorce gets. Uh, so there was this, uh, what was the point I was making though? We were talking about matrilineal. I know, system. even the ritual of, of wedding. So when the kings get married, what happens is the lady is invited to the palace and there's a room where the wedding takes place. There's a cloth and a, it's kept in a, in a tray and there's a golden cup that's kept there with water. And what happens is the actual handing of the cloth is done by the chamberlain. It's not by, done by the king in person. The chamberlain hands over the cloth. The lady wears all these fine silks and etc. She takes that golden pot of water and then goes into the king's bedchamber. So one could argue that technically she's not even married to the king because the king is like a saintly figure. There is this one historian of Travancore who talks about how Martha Andavarma, because he creates all this protocol around the royal family, and most importantly, he dedicates the kingdom to God. He goes to the Padmanabhaswami temple and says, all my conquests I dedicate to God. It is often cast as this great spiritual act, but it wasn't a spiritual act. What he was doing was, again, politics. I mean, there may have been some spiritual angle to it, but look at this. He was a conqueror. He was seen as an invader in other parts of Kerala. Everywhere he goes, even after he's got the hard power, people treat him as Id with illegitimacy. They say, you're not, you don't belong here. We don't accept you. So you donate it to God. You can criticize the king. But tomorrow onwards, once it becomes God's estate, you can't criticize God. So that's why by handing it over to the deity in the temple and ruling as the deity's regent on earth, it, you're basically, you know, uh, precluding a lot of uh, criticism. Nobody can stand up to you. It was the anti-national of its own time. You know, <laughs> if you stand up to the king, you're actually standing up to God. You're not a, a good... Uh, citizen of the state, etc., etc. So, you know, he reinforces this because of which the king starts being, as to quote this historian, Shanguni Menon of the 19th century, who's a Darbar historian. The king is seen a lot like a, like the Pope, the semi-religious figure. So the semi-religious figure is not technically supposed to have marriage and kids and carnal feelings. So there is a little bit of, of that also. But yeah, this matrilineal system, it, it spreads even in, in regular, you know, Naya families like mine, for example. In the old days, when my father passed away, you know, there is that question of whether I should even have done the rituals. Because his sister's children are the ones who have the first claim. Nowadays, the children do it themselves. 
but even then somebody from the sister's family will stand with you and they will also participate in the ritual because that you can't entirely give up that old custom either and you know when when people die you have that period of pollution right you're not supposed to go to temples for a certain number of days 10, 10 days or 12 days or something technically for a man's children they don't they never polluted the day of father passes away you can go to the temple if you want because you don't get that pollution that goes to a sister's family they are the ones who are polluted not you no and one interesting consequence of matrilineal system and i'm guessing that there is causation to this and not just correlation is that um, the women therefore tend to be extremely empowered in the sense i was you know just a couple of days ago i was uh, reading a biography of mary shelley who wrote frankenstein because i was sort of talking about that for my other show the book club and storytell and interesting tidbit i picked up there is that her husband percy gave her a book to read which was by this guy called james lawrence and it was called the empire of the nyers and mm, she was, yeah and mary shelley you got to remember is a daughter of mary wollstonecraft she's a feminist herself and all that but this book was too feminist for her <laughs> so uh, you know because and what the book describes and what the nyers were and what kerala society was is not just a matrilineal line of uh, descent and uh, you know giving kingship and property and all of that but you know women were empowered they would take multiple husbands they would you know have multiple sexual partners and you know all of those what we tend to think of as sanskar or whatever is actually something that uh, which was brought in by the british when they imposed the victorian values i mean as you've pointed out in uh, the last episode we did women in kerala typically went around bechestrate till the british you know impose their sense of yeah. uh, shame on them yeah. and it was in fact considered rude to uh, it was considered of, indecent not even rude you were yeah. considered a i mean no, not to use uh, pardon my french but you know you were considered a slut if you wore a blouse if you were a hindu woman of high caste and you wore a blouse they'd say my god why you dress like a slut because only a, a woman of no culture only a public woman would feel the need to sort of cover herself up like that no decent woman would feel the need to cover herself because what are you why are you sexualizing your breasts in fact if i'm not mistaken there is an anecdote in ivory throne also where a queen has a woman who dares to cover her breast in front of her has a breast mutilated yeah there is a because story because she's yeah. like hey we are all you know yeah you can't you know, go you can't, and you can't go and dress like that how shameless there, but the polyandry is fascinating this idea of women having multiple husbands as i said not only divorce but you could have multiple husbands i have met a woman she's still alive there's town called mavelikara there's a village near that which is where my ancestors lived and in that village i have met a woman in her 90s who was married to two brothers she was co-wife to two brothers and this woman is still alive i have spoken to her i have talked to her and of course it's very awkward to raise this question but everybody in that village openly says ha that madam's you know they they say refer to the senior husband or the junior husband based on the on the age of these two men who are brothers and there is no embarrassment about it you know there is a maid says avadte valya sar and kuchu sar sir is the english word sir and kuchu and velya means junior and senior there is no embarrassment there's no sense of surprise because these things are not all that unfamiliar we like to pretend now we like to pretend that there is something taboo about this but the fact is in rural kerala this sort of story is still it doesn't startle anyone there are still families there are still old people who've lived that life who've lived uh, in that polyandrous uh, system my great grandmother there's a wonderful story about how she first started wearing the blouse this is in, only in the 1940s she's already a woman in her 40s at that time her second daughter gets married and the younger women are all wearing blouses and sarees etc they've stopped giving they've given up the older uh, tradition of wearing just the thing around your waist so for the wedding the boy's mother comes to the 
house and she brings with her and she's come wearing this thing called the rauka and my great grandma's like my god you're my age but you're wearing a blouse and all that and she says oh you don't you know this is a new fashion you know it's 1940s now such a modern time we should start wearing these these you know wonderful new things called blouses and my great grandmother wears it and first she's extremely ashamed about coming out in public wearing it so she'll wear it inside the house show it to her daughters and hide it and fold it away and put it away thinking oh my god if i wear a blouse what will my husband say what will my brother say you know how indecent of me to do that what will they think about me and so on finally it takes her children some time to persuade her saying that it's okay to wear a blouse wearing a blouse does not make you a bad person you know this is a time where uh, she's belongs to that generation where wearing a blouse is a bad thing my father's side great grandmother till she died in the 1970s she never wore a blouse she refused she said i will not dress like this you know this this new new fangled fashion that you guys have discovered i'm not going to wear it so we have a photograph of her taken on one of those old cameras where you get these square little pictures of her with a niece of hers or something the niece is wearing a blouse and a, a regular malayali saree as it were the old lady has just got a loose cloth on one side of her shoulder so the other side is completely exposed and she has got this and my father says that it was i mean people didn't even look at it as as bad or as as something to be embarrassed about that woman would you know people would come to the house she would feed them she would have servants around the house this is this is an agrarian society so a lot of workers would be around and she'd be the one managing all this in the stopless avatar because nobody looked at it with that sexual gaze nobody looked at it with a a gaze of that conveyed vulgarity or indecency in any way but these things can change very quickly right that's the thing with sanskar often things we think are ancient sanskar are not all that ancient they're a very recent vintage no in fact and that's probably the worst thing the british gave us this whole veneer of morality which you put on everything and i think of you know we might be the most if not one of the most sexually repressed nations on earth and 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 a lot of it is you know because of yeah. shit like this which the yeah. british brought in we weren't like this we internalized a lot of their you know the british started calling us uncivilized they started calling us barbaric they said oh you don't even cover yourself well what is this like hideous culture and how can you be so proud of your culture if this is how you even walk around uh you know there's this uh, i was reading a review yesterday of a book on the devdasi balasaraswati and it's fascinating that in the review it's not in the book i think but in the review the critic talks about how there was a famous devdasi who would perform and these men would gather around and she one of her acts was to pretend she'd lost her hearing and look for it basically in the crotches of all these men who would gather and they'd all laugh etc etc it was sort of vulgar in in some ways perhaps it was some sort of playful sexual whatever but we were a culture that even had that and these patrons of devdasis were all who big temple brahmins big landlords people like that so you're basically saying that indian culture included landlords gathering around a woman looking for her earring in their crotch that was permissible that there were spaces to allow even something like that now we're not getting into the politics of whether it was good for the devdasi whether you know it was good for women and so on but the point is there were cultural spaces where there was that kind of sexual liberation and at least to my limited knowledge devdasis weren't slut shamed it, no. it wasn't you know it it was a later equation of the devdasis with... also is because of victorian exactly it's, victorians it's... not only deposed rajas which means what the patronage the devdasis received is gone suddenly from doing poetry and literature etc many of them are forced to actually get into prostitution because they have to survive. there is obviously prostitution one can't say that they weren't coerced and their bodies weren't used by men but equally it wasn't like they were without agency a lot of these women did have agency a lot of the women were beyond a random man couldn't go and grasp them they chose their patrons if they were in positions of power and there are cases of devdasis in positions of great power and great literature uh, literate uh, in in places of great uh, literary quality and great literary achievement uh, we discussed muddu parni for example in our last session on my third book so you know there are there are stories like that but the point is for a culture now where men go into clubs and beat up women for wearing short clothes hello talk about this devdasi who's looking for her earring in somebody's crotch she was you know part of india's 
tradition as it were tradition is not a rock as i you know that's my latest analogy it's not a rock you put in a gilded cage and try to protect it's a breathing organism it has it, it has an amorphous shape you know it is a shapeless commodity frankly it just keeps evolving and changing with time acquiring different hues based on what we make of it so to think that you know our culture is some kind of staid sedate thing where everyone's got their spines erect and they're wearing starched clothes and chanting the thousand names of vishnu every day not true there is there is a culture far beyond this textbook version which the victorians and the 19th century so called reformers popularized and kerala fell victim to this in a very major way because the matrilineal system completely shocked all these people polyandry shocked them even more and perhaps the idea of women holding property got even more scandalizing for a lot of men and and your book of course is all this and more and the interesting thing about your book is that it's more than 700 pages it's 20 chapters and a preface and we've just finished talking about the preface <laughs> let's take a quick commercial break and we'll come back and we'll actually talk about the book if you've gotten so far in this podcast it means you like listening to good audio content and you're thirsty for knowledge In that case I'd urge you to check out Storytel the sponsors of this episode. Storytel is an audiobook platform that has a massive range of audiobooks from around the world. The international collection is stellar but so is their local collection. They have a fantastic range of Marathi and Hindi audiobooks. What's more I do a weekly podcast there called The Book Club with Amit Verma in which I talk about one book every week giving context giving you a taste of the book and so on. As long as Storytel sponsors the show, I will recommend an audiobook that I liked on that platform every week. My recommendation for this week is the subject of this episode of The Scene in the Unseen, The Ivory Throne by Manu Pillai. Yes, it's available as an audiobook on Storytel, so if you're enjoying this episode, you'll probably enjoy the audiobook as well. The Ivory Throne by Manu Pillai on Storytel. Download their app or visit storytel.com. Remember, that's Storytel with a single L. storytel.com. Welcome back to the scene in the unseen I'm chatting with Manu Pillai about uh, the Ivory Throne his book on Kerala in particular the House of Travancore and the book begins with a chapter on the most famous Verma of all time uh, Raja Ravi Verma which yeah. in, in many ways is a very apt uh, sort of uh, place to begin because uh, his descendants basically rule the rest of the book so so tell me a bit about um, uh, you know how um, Raja Ravi Verma um, coming up in the court of Ayilyam Tirunal is that Ayilyam right Ayilyam Tirunal Ayilyam Tirunam and uh, his wife Kalyani uh, Pillai who um, was one of those amachis who sort of a very powerful uh, consort to the king as such but after yeah. his death uh, sort of uh, fades away uh, yeah fades away but uh, an early patron of Raja Ravi Verma who initially when he goes through the paint i mean of course because of his upbringing and everything he is sort of taken in and uh, patronized but people refuse to teach him painting the established guys of the day and and uh, so what's happening there so ravi verma belongs to a group of 10 odd families which are called koildambarans koildambarans are these ex rajas who immigrated from malabar to travancore most of them during the time tipu sultan uh, invaded malabar and they lost all their territories so they accepted pensions afterwards from the british and they decided to just come and live in travancore ravi verma's family however is the oldest which came in the 17th century and they were famous for an entire for like nearly 100 years all the kings of travancore were fathered by men 
who were consorts to Travancore princesses. These these consorts all, the male consorts all came from the Kilimanjaro family for a very long time. So Ravi Verma was born into this family. Now a lot of legend has sort of cloaked his story after he became famous. So there is a story, for example, that he was brought to court and he was uh, rejected as a princess's husband because he was too dark. And how he said, "Oh, this was actually a wonderful thing because if he had been forced to marry a princess, he would never have been able to travel and discover his true calling." It's rubbish because by the time he came to the Travancore court, all the princesses were already married. So there was no question of uh, of marrying a royal princess. It's one of those later stories, masala that people add to the stories of famous men. even the 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 story that you know he was some sort of self-taught genius in a in an artless universe and he had to sort of struggle against the odds is exaggerated in some ways because there was a lot of art in travanco he was exposed to a lot of things for a long time there was a painter called ramaswami naidu there was before him a man called alagiri naidu these people were men of talent who you know far surpassed him for a very long period but he did something very unusual which is that ravi verma never got satisfied with court settings and the patronage of one court he was there for 18 years 1862 till the death of this king called William Tirunal in 1880 the successor king did not like Ravi Verma so Ravi Verma had no option but to leave then he does something he takes advantage of the railways he takes advantage of patronage he's getting you know the people are moving around in india it's finally possible to move around with great ease so former diwan of travancore from a chief minister called madhav rao is now diwan in baroda he uses that to bounce and get a paint, painting commission in baroda then he gets another one myso that's how ravi verma becomes this pan indian figure and leaves the travancore setting if he had stayed content as a darbar artist he would never have become famous it was not purely talent perhaps there were more talented men than him in the darbar he's the one who made an opportunity out of it he saw an opportunity recognized it for what it was and worked like a professional he diligently uh, stuck to deadlines as far as he could he delivered on uh, promises he made he traveled hustled you know even when he became famous he once went to get a commission from the nizam of hyderabad he was by then a very famous artist the nizam made him wait for 2 hours and then finally just brushed him away but the ravi verma's willingness to hustle is really something because you know that that professional ethic is not something that was linked to his background he came from a feudal background he had no reason to live a professional life like this what is interesting with the travancore royal family and him though is that how his quest to sort of build a career causes a lot of animosity in his personal life now ravi verma's wife is the grandmother of the future maharani's of travancore setu lakshmi ban setu parvati bai and their her marriage with ravi verma is extremely turbulent this woman to begin with is from an aristocratic family she does not understand why her husband needs a profession more scandalizingly she doesn't know why on earth he wants to be a painter of all things because painters were seen as artisans they were not seen as artists you know signing your name is an innovation and in that he really begins in travancore brings a certain respect to it partly also because of his class yeah, because, and the combination of using the lithograph to spread his yeah, uh, gives him mass work wide and uh, you know signing is thing just you know as a branding exercise uh, you know whether unprecedented yeah. yeah but he also uses his class and caste connections the thing is he ravi verma because he belongs to these families that supplies husbands to royalty he is essentially in many ways uh, an aristocrat he's part of the cream of society so wherever he goes he's not treated as an artisan he's treated as a gentleman artist and that's a very new sort of concept for an indian painter in the late 19th century now the thing is the wife doesn't like this it also means a lot of separation from her there's a charming story but not charming really but a very telling story about how he once is, has disappeared for a long time then he finally comes back to his wife's place and as usual as a matrilineal husband he has to go to his wife's place to meet her and he she's gone for a bath or something or she's gone to the temple or something and he's got this wonderful italian chandelier to hang up there and he tells all the servants okay go ahead and put this up before she comes back from the temple visit so it's a surprise for her the lady comes back she takes one look at this well lit beautiful expensive chandelier he's got from some god knows which maharaja or the other 
commands her servants to pull it down and throws it out of the window and she smashes it because she doesn't care she's like you know you've not been here for 2 years i don't know you can just waltz in with a chandelier and think that the present is going to sort this out it's not uh, she also there's a record from her nephew talking about how she got addicted to alcohol now her sisters were already by that time maharani's of travancore so she's essentially in their shadow on the one hand she's also got a husband who neglects her and you know she therefore seems to have a very a very difficult life and she dies a very uh, untimely death in her mid 30s you know she dies a very young woman now ravi orma has three daughters and two sons one daughter really doesn't come into the picture the oldest son becomes a drunkard disappears in 1912 nobody knows what happened to him there's a story that he disappeared into goa and he married a konkani christian and there are christian descendants of ravi orma in goa but nobody's really heard of them after that the second son goes to the jj school of art learns art etc but has only a fraction of his father's talent he doesn't become a famous name and he never manages to leave the travancore darbar in kerala and gets stuck in that court environment so he's not famous of the two daughters this is where the politics comes now it majorly have the word saundarya and comfort beauty was you know small little petty disputes in the family the older daughter is not only good looking she's extremely imperious and the mother's untimely death means that she becomes the de facto head of the family the father's anyway traveling etc so this eldest girl steps up and becomes the main force in the family that she's beautiful and imperious further adds to her personality the second daughter is not only not beautiful she's got a squint she's dark skinned and she's therefore seen as the and not the the not pretty sister in the family uh, the youngest one's also good looking so the middle sister's got this inferiority complex you know of sorts that she's not not only she's you know the main person in the family her sister's the head of the family she's not even good looking now it is these two sisters their daughters who get adopted into the travancore royal family because the travancore royal family has kings and princes but it's run out of female heirs whenever that happens they adopt girls in north indian families they adopt boys uh from various uh, families but in this case they are of girl children so if they don't have daughters they'll adopt girls and and the back story to this is that earlier the two people the two girls they adopted were the sisters of bhagirathi who was raja yeah, ravi verma's wife. Uh, wife and therefore they have an interest especially the older one of them who is uh, lakshmi bai yeah. an earlier lakshmi bai not the heroine of our uh, story and she has an interest in getting her um, nieces so yeah. to say Uh, adopted into the her grand nieces ravi orma's grandchildren yeah, basically were... there were three sisters in the mavelikara aristocratic family of royal descent from north kerala two were adopted in the mid 19th century into the travancore family the one who was not adopted is ravi orma's wife now a few uh, two generations pass one of these queens has no children the other queen has only sons no surviving daughters so the adoption is proof pointless because you've produced boys and boys will rule but boys will not take the family forward so you need to adopt girls again so who do they turn to the grandchildren of their third sister who wasn't adopted those grandchildren are then brought into the family but now the funny thing is this adoption is fraught with complications because in the travancore royal family itself the heir apparent who then dies very soon after some say he was poisoned to death but there's no proof um, he basically objects to these girls being adopted for several reasons he says their grandmother that is ravi orma's wife was addicted to alcohol so this is not a good family there's and their brother cancer, in fact yeah. and her brother mm. there's cancer in the family there's that's why you know that's also not a good thing he thinks these girls are not suitable to be adopted some say ravi orma used his influence on lord curzon the viceroy but the fact is the then maharaja was keen on these girls so they get it done one interesting thing which i discovered after i wrote the book and which really took me aback and it's funny how not a single biographer even the the most authoritative biography of ravi orma by rupika chavla does not have this story and it's not made it to my book because i found it afterwards is that there's one more scandal in ravi orma's family which was that his father in law was a murderer so ravi orma's mother in law there's this magnificent painting he's done of this lady you know he's um, this lady is you know he's famous for painting all these fair skinned indian classical beauties as it were 
this lady is not only fair skin she's dark skin she has bloodshot eyes a, a mane of really like white silver hair glaring out of the painting she's got a bulbous nose not a classical ravi orma beauty you'd expect but he's this one painting i think is the most striking portrait he's done because he's depicted his mother in law exactly as she was some say she's he's actually softened her appearance because she's a ferocious looking woman in this painting it was in the travanco royal family now i think in a private collection in bangalore uh and this lady uh, apparently was having there's a story that uh, she had a servant called madhavan and one day madhavan was found killed the official story was he'd stolen 12 pieces of jewelry so her husband caught him and beat him up and murdered him now the the official who actually investigated it found that the murder was highly sadistic someone had tried to gouge out his eyes a massive jackfruit had been like used to beat him up and this and then they tried to hang up the body or put it in a in a in a pond it's not clear what exactly happened but they tried to make it look like suicide and this particular official said the police is not doing a good job of the investigation they're trying to cover this up as a suicide why are they doing this is all in 1862 there's a covered up suicide in mavelikara and the the senior official says no I, this has to be investigated properly and they discover in the cochin courier there's a newspaper that says that ravirma's father in law suspected this lady this ferocious lady in the painting <laughs> of having an affair with this servant called madhavan and that is why he killed him in this sadistic fashion and the man was tried he was taken to court and he was sentenced to life imprisonment oh wow and this is not mentioned in any of ravirma's biographies that his father in law was essentially stuck in jail and that his mother in law was part of one of the big sex scandals of the of the 1860s as it were so anyway so there's all sorts of chaos and and problems in ravirma's family yet in 1900 these two girls are adopted which are basically uh, the elder daughter of ravi verma you mentioned is mahaprabha and she is a fair and beautiful yeah. one and her daughter is setu lakshmi bai and the other one, daughter yeah and the middle daughter i can't pronounce kuchukuni kuchukuni so her daughter is setu parvati bai yeah. who were adopted as senior and junior rani of travancore senior and junior rani now this brings in now there was already politics between the sisters you know their mothers did not get along their mothers were had their own issues now this translates to the children as well because what happens is setu lakshmi bai the older one is the fair skinned perfect child she's very good at her exam she's very diligent very obedient her teachers all love her and as senior rani she's very proper she's just like perfect senior rani does everything perfectly and she doesn't enjoy the limelight so she's a very shy woman so people find it sweet you know she's in a position of influence but she's also shy so like this this evolving idea of ideal of indian womanhood which is that women should be a certain way she seems to fit all these new notions of what a girl should be and and what you also you know write uh, describe in your book is how shortly after these two are adapted there are three deaths in the family hmm. all which the is both the sons die and then uh, the no, senior uh, lakshmi bai dies as well also. and therefore setu lakshmi bai at the age of 10 5 at the age of 5 yeah, uh, yeah is a de facto uh, queen of travancore So now this causes issues for her cousin because her cousin is the junior rani. Now implicit in that title itself is junior your your junior. Your, she's just a year younger. Yeah, she's just a year younger. And frankly she has more of a personality to be queen. She's rebellious, unorthodox, you know, she's the first person in the Travancore royal family to take her daughter and go abroad for the first time, cross the Kalapani on her own. She goes to meet the pope and the pope's uh, secretary says, "Oh, you know, with the pope you can't really wear makeup etc. You have to be dressed a certain way." She told, tells him to essentially buzz off and say that she'll dress exactly as she wants in front of the pope. In the 1930s, Trivandrum is an orthodox temple town, and this lady has the the gall really to bring Margaret Sanger, the great birth control activist who even cheesed off Gandhi ji, to come to this temple town and address a gathering full of men and about the advantages of birth control. Remarkable. She's a very spunky interesting lady. Her politics is extremely complicated but <laughs> as a person remarkable figure. 
So you have a senior Rani who officially holds the limelight, who doesn't really, who's very shy and retiring and is very sweet, but does not have, you know, this kind of rebellious personality. You have the junior who hates being in the shadow, who hates being in the, in, in, in not in the limelight, who wants the limelight and who has the personality for it, but she's stuck in a junior position. And although they're only five years old at the time, six and just under, and, and just about five, one year's age difference. Uh, although they're children, they're seen by the people as institutions. They're not little girls. They are senior Rani and junior Rani. So from the beginning, there is protocol around them. From the beginning, you know, they, they have to miss, visit and meet state visitors and governors and viceroys and people. And childhood like is gone. They there can't is no childhood. Friends. There nothing. is no, they have no friends. There is no notion of childhood. They're not even allowed to see their families except, you know, every six months, they, their families can come and stay. But otherwise, they can't really have any access. And even contact. their fathers have to, you know. Their fathers have to bow to them. You know, they, they can't, uh, you know. You can't, you can't caress your, your little girl. You can't head. call your yeah. daughter by name. She is now her highness you. You can't really touch her head and pretend she's your daughter. I mean, private perhaps you can, but basically a lot of protocol comes into their life. Now, they grow up, they get their tutors and governesses and they're, they're raised in a certain way. Now, marriage comes into this. Now, already one is evolving into this good-looking pretty one. The other one is not, you know, like her mother. She's darker. In fact, she's dark. Therefore, during the adoption, a senior courtier even said she's too black to be a princess. There's an actual record of this, that this girl should not be adopted because she's too dark and she doesn't look royal enough. So you can imagine, she's obviously affected by this constant comparison with her seemingly perfect older sister. Now marriage happens. How does marriage happen? Boys are presented to these girls. So the senior Rani is presented two brothers and she's made to look from a balcony and choose whichever one she likes of the two brothers. One would think that in courts, horoscopes, etc. matter. No, the Rani chooses who she wants. It's the job of the astrologer to make the horoscope match. Otherwise, he loses his job. That's how it works. So she looks at these two boys. The older one is this 20-year-old, very handsome man. She says, she's a 10-year-old girl. She's like, no, 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 this one is too much for me. She chooses this diminutive-looking 16-year-old, you know, slightly sulky-looking, less handsome brother. Which surprises everyone because basically the older boy, as you describe him, and he's even depicted in a Raja Ravi Verma painting, which I then Google yeah. just to see yeah. what it's like. He's basically a bare-chested Virat Kohli. He is. <laughs> in <laughs> fact, there's one painting that's not in the book uh, of yeah. him. He's sort of, you know, he held his hands like this. He's sort of, you know, uh, folded against his chest. And he's, again, shirtless. And he's got his hair let loose a little bit. And he's wearing a typical sort of munda around his waist. And he's shirtless. And he's looking out like that at the uh, at the viewer of the painting. And it's painted by Ravi Verma. And he's strikingly good. looking. That's a wonderful painting. Like he's, it's odd that in the early 20th century, this man clearly worked out a lot because he's got the muscles and all of that. Yeah. Because this is a time when, you know, status was in the size of your pot belly. You know, he's depended like, on how. I'm like, this is your local Bollywood would wanna be in the Lokhandwala gym. Yeah. That's <laughs> so there's the painting you you refer to is the Ravi Varma painting called Sri Rama Vanquishes the Sea, in which yeah, this one models as Rama for yeah, Ravi Varma. Correct. So he is not chosen, his brother's chosen. His brother later gets smallpox and his face is completely uh, left with pock marks, and he's not a very handsome man, but he's a very shrewd man. And the brother's name is Rama Rama. He's called the Valya Koldamran, the senior consort, because he's married to the senior Rani. Now, Junior Rani the next year is offered husband choices for herself. She's offered five men. She decides to go and marry the, a good-looking man who's also, unfortunately, the oldest. He's about 11 years older than her. But she says, look, he's already got a BA degree. He's a graduate from a university and all that. So he must be a good pick. And she marries him. Which is a chap called Ravi Varman. Which is the, also called Ravi Varman. He's the Kuchu Koldamran, the junior consort. 
Now, the thing is, the marriages turn out very interestingly for both women. The senior Rani is married to this man and she is devoted to her husband. He has the personality to go out. He's, he picks up, now that he's picked up from a rural part of Kerala and, and planted in the palace, he starts learning English and he starts reading a lot. He starts riding. He acquires skills at shooting and sports and things that he enjoys this royal life. And she's devoted to him. And she finds that he's really good at the limelight and all of that. So she starts increasingly supporting her husband. Juna Rani's husband, uh, and see, they're not, although they get married, at 10, the marriage is only consummated at 14, not immediately. They're children. So in the beginning, they're allowed to play hopscotch with each other and play board games and things like that for one hour every day. Nothing more than that. There's no contact beyond that. Junior Rani's husband, unfortunately, is not. he's already a grown man when they marry. So by the time she's 14 and ready to consummate the marriage, he's in his mid-20s. He's got a graduate degree, but he's extremely orthodox. So just as she's unorthodox and rebellious and she'll even play golf when she's pregnant and go out riding and learn to drive and things like that. This man won't shake hands with women thinking it's, you know, I'm impure. At banquets, he'll sit there clutching a lemon because eating meat and eating in the presence of white people will make him lose his caste. I actually highlighted that line in the book because it's such a fantastic detail that at banquets, he's sitting holding a lemon. Lemon, because lemons <laughs> absorbed impurities from... Oh, actually, uh, that's the reason he's holding a lemon. It's okay. the same principle. No? You hang a lemon outside uh-huh, your door because right. it absorbs all the evil <laughs> in the room. So naturally, the junior and his guests were not pleased when she was there and she's hosting a party and her husband sits there pretending they're all unwelcome, impure guests. And she was shrewd, a very, very clever woman. For example, she was a vegetarian. So there are these wonderful stories about how, uh, you know, at garden parties, they'd have fish fry going around with toothpicks, etc. for people to eat them. Now, she couldn't offend her guests, but she was a vegetarian, so she couldn't eat the fish. So she would have tapioca or cassava cut in the exact shape and fried in the exact same fashion. And that would come to her on a tray. So she could eat something that looked like fish, but it was actually vegetarian. While her guests ate the actual fish, while her husband sat there clutching a lemon. So it's, <laughs> it's as, as complicated as that. So Junior Rani's marriage is not very happy. Now, the coming of the husbands add new complications to this because in the matrilineal system, the sisters are supposed to be tight. Now, to begin with, their mothers have a politics. So the sisters, these adopted Ranis don't get along. Senior and junior Rani don't get along. The husbands come in, which means a new element comes in. Succession. Who produces the next heir to the throne? They've been adopted to produce the next Maharaja, you know. And the thing to note is because all these people died, you know, you've basically got a king who's passing 50. All his predecessor kings have died, died before 50. 50. Yeah. So he is like, I need an heir now. Paranoid. Yeah, these kids have to produce heirs right away. And the first son born out of either of these two girls is the next ruler. Is the next ruler. So now there is competition among them. And, uh, you know, Setu Lakshmi Bai has a head start of a year. Yeah. She gets married at 10. The other kid gets married, uh, you know, around the same yeah. time. And then they turn 14 and they... Marriages are consummated. Yeah. So Setu Lakshmi Bai incidentally does get pregnant. and But in the eighth month, uh, the baby, I think, dies in the womb or something. And uh, essentially, it's a stillbirth. It is alleged that there is black magic yeah, involved. There, is, there are stories there, but no evidence of that. But it's a court. Royal courts are full of rumors and yeah, factions yeah. and things like that. And once succession comes in, again, the mothers get involved. Because see, the junior Rani's mother's always been in the shadow of her sister. And her daughter, the junior Rani, is also junior. So now what happens is in 1912, at the age of 16, the junior Rani produces a male heir. Suddenly, this becomes in many ways her passport to prominence. From being in the shadow of her sister, the senior Rani, she is now mother to the heir apparent. So the heir apparent is entitled to his own palace, to his own servants, to his own income, etc. Even though the boy is just a baby, she says, as his mother, I, I should be able to manage that. And the Maharaja says, that makes sense. He is 
even though he's an infant he's automatically heir apparent to the throne so everything an heir apparent is entitled to the junior rani gets so she moves out of the senior rani's shadow the senior rani meanwhile feels that you know she's now suddenly lost all her prominence because not only did she have this stillbirth after that she had several miscarriages and then for the next over nearly a decade she doesn't have children she's struggling to have children and eventually she has girls whereas her sister produces the maharaja next maharaja she produces a girl to continue the matrilineal line and she produces a spare to the throne in the form of a second son so she has performed her duty to the dynasty in one within a space of one decade she's gone ahead and produced three children senior rani has no children she only has two daughters much later after all the junior rani's children are born so this to begin with things start getting a little lopsided in terms of who's the main figure in the family then we come to the year 1920 now and and what was also interesting are the details in your book about how after this first son is born she is so paranoid that uh, he is going to be sabotaged yeah, and he is going to be going killed to as yeah. allegedly earlier kings might have been yeah. that uh, she doesn't allow anyone uh, to um, meet the kid Had free access to yeah, the boy including yeah. the senior uh, rani lakshmi bai's husband the renowned scholar yeah. kerala varma who is like a father figure to who both these the, young yeah, father of modern malayalam prose literature and all yeah and yeah. i want to come back to sanskrit and malayalam in a, in a bit but he so he's basically like a father figure to both these young girls and suddenly one of them gets a son and he's not allowed to be alone with the, yeah, the, the child and ditto of course the aunt is like no when you're okay because not allowed because yeah, i mean there are no rules it's just that it's very clear that you are not yeah. welcome around this child because people are paranoid yeah. frankly that he's not a boy again that kid from day 1 is a future maharaja he is seen therefore as that icon he's not seen therefore as a little boy he's not a normal baby and he also he is also the relief for the baggage that these two women junior rani and her mother have carried for years and yeah. years and years yeah this and is I mean, a deliverance that's the thing a, a, a politics that starts with ravi orma's bad marriage so husband and wife don't get along yeah. their daughters that, that produces politics between their daughters in terms of the beautiful daughter who ravi orma paints and uses as a model and who's given who's a de facto head of the family and the not so beautiful daughter who's always in the who shadows. the mother liked apparently yeah then you have royal children who are now adopted into a royal family where power gets involved so in addition to family dispute and the usual family quarrels that all families have powers involved now so things start going i mean the the, the standard of the scale of the problem starts increasing magnifying now what happens is that Setu Lakshmi Bai becomes cornered at court partly also because she's extremely uh, devoted to her husband and her uncle the maharaja the old man Moolam Thirunal does not like it and uh, he says you know this boy is just your consort you should keep him in his place and the consort her husband is also getting big airs about who he is in the sense that you know junior rani is the junior rani she is junior to the senior rani but for the husband she is still a queen so he has to bow to the junior rani also because she is still royalty and he's not he hates that he feels that as husband to the senior rani why should he bow to the junior rani whereas junior rani says whether or not i'm junior in my family is not your business as far as you're concerned i am also a rani so you have to bow to me so the feud begins between these two people and the senior rani supports her husband saying you know how dare you speak to my husband like this she's been cornered because she can't produce children all she has for support is her husband so she becomes increasingly close to her husband and junior rani says this is not your loyalty should be to the matrilineal family not to your husband This is also linked to that larger Victorian conversation that wives should be devoted to their husbands. Matrilineal system is bad. Patriarchal families are better. So this whole conversation is also part of that larger change in society. What is also interesting is the Maharaja at that time is this man called Moolam Thirunal, the uncle of these adopted Ranis. He is entirely a puppet in the hands of some courtiers. That is another fascinating story that tells you a lot about marriage and matrilineal in Kerala. So the Maharaja is married first to a lady. She dies, leaving him a son. She he doesn't marry again for about sixteen, seventeen years. At some point, he falls in love with a lady called Kartyani. Now, Kartyani is a 
the wife of a palace servant and she belongs to a family who traditionally supplied women who husk the rice etc in the padmanabha swami temple so middle class naya family not aristocracy not of especially high birth or anything and she's married to a palace servant called shangubale now what happens is maharaja falls in love with this married woman shangubale agrees to give up his wife divorce is easy so he divorces kartyani maharaja decides to marry kartyani but there's a rule maharajas can only marry from specific uh, you know families called amavidus in trivandrum which are you know the families from which they take their brides usually so what is what does he do he adopts kartyani into one of these amavidus raises her status in society she suddenly becomes an aristocratic woman through adoption and the maharaja marries her in return for so now maharajas married a already married woman in return for giving her up the ex husband is also given the title of tambi and raised into a very senior position in court and he becomes the real controller of the maharaja increasingly the maharaja's access to the maharaja you know a lot of decisions he takes are actually channeled through this man called shankaran shankupille becomes shankaran tambi through his second wife's first husband so once in court there was a there was a journalist who was asked in court who is shankaran tambi and he says the former husband of the maharaja's present wife <laughs> because that was the fact of it i mean it was the former husband of the maharaja's present wife so this coterie around the maharaja setu lakshmi does not like because she does not like the corruption they are involved in she does not like the culture that's there she, when she's a child she can't object but as soon as she turns 18 she and her husband start standing apart from her and there's even a rumor like you pointed out that this former husband of the present wife was behind the three uh, deaths that happened there, there was a rumor that he but, got those princes killed because uh, he they were in their in his way they didn't yeah. support they didn't approve of him so he's essentially a shady character uh, so Senior Rani is cornered. Junior Rani becomes the main person, the the mother of the new heir, etc. Then in 1924, the Maharaja, the reigning Maharaja, dies in his 60s. This creates an awkward situation because Junior Rani's son is only 12 years old, so he's not old enough to rule. In North Indian patriarchal kingdoms, usually the British would appoint the wife or the widow of the dead Maharaja as a regent, and they would appoint a pro-British regency council, and this is how the state would be governed till the boy grew up. And in the interim, that boy would be trained by Englishmen to be loyal to the British Empire and so on. Complete brainwashing would happen. In Travancore, however, because it was matrilineal, the law was very clear. If there is no male, or if the existing male member is not in a capacity to rule, either for minority or for, imbe- uh, for being mentally incapable or whatever, it is the power to rule goes to the eldest female member. What does that translate into? till the junior rani's son comes of age power vests with the senior rani so for junior rani's son what she suddenly discovers is her sister is going to rule not her so first she says there should be a council and she should be a member senior rani says no there have been regents in the past in tranquil in fact the word regent is a british invention in the matrilineal system when a woman rules she rules as maharaja so in malayalam documents setu lakshmi bai is called puradam tirunal maharaja not maharani colloquially she is maharani but she is also a maharaja when she rules and that means she has full powers there's no regency council in, in, uh, put by the british she rules directly with the minister like all other rulers before her this now makes that power conflict between the sisters more direct because suddenly senior rani is in power for the junior son so for the next 7 years seniors in control and the juniors waiting she's dying to sort of get her son in power and she eventually manages to persuade lord willingdon who's the viceroy to reduce the regency by 6 months and uh, get her son installed after which uh, you know the the feud between the sisters really does escalate in many ways and what is interesting here is right you'd imagine that okay this young shy girl who is you know not very outgoing you don't really know what she thinks she is now the maharaja as it were and she will just let uh you know her region, her officers and whatever do their thing and she take or a husband do their thing and take a back seat but no this lady turns out to be extremely uh, formidable and a significant early sign of this being the y 
Britcom rebel, yeah. you know, rebel. Tell, tell, tell in fact, the, when she comes to power, the then British resident in a confidential document to the Viceroy describes her as the, the pious orthodox domestic type, by which basically he means she's a housewife. She's not really going to rule. Her husband is probably going to control her. And that's how the government will be conducted until the Maharaja comes of age. What they discover is no, she's actually got a mind of her own. She is gentle. She is shy. She doesn't like the limelight, but she's also exceedingly hardworking. I mean, part of it is not surprising. The fact is she's been cornered for the last decade in court. She's had no status. So she has something to prove. She knows that she does. she's not going to hold power forever. She's only going to hold it for a period of about seven to eight years. And in that time, she somehow has to prove herself. She has to do her best. And she and her husband have this joint pact that they're going to work as hard as possible and try and get, uh, you know, carve out their place in history. Because they know otherwise, once the junior Rani's come, son comes to power, they're going to be shunted back into the, into the corner. They're not really going to enjoy any influence after that. So those seven years become very important for them. And there is at that time this Vaikam Satyagraha going on, which is to open up all roads around the temple in Vaikam to Dalits as well. Yeah, because till then Dalits were not allowed on the spot. And this is the, there's a major agitation going on in the middle. There are floods in Kerala, like the recent floods we had in 2019 and 2018. A uh, chaos happening. And this woman's come to rule. Uh, a woman everybody thinks is a housewife has now suddenly been placed in a position of ruling. She, however, breaks a lot of these uh, notions about her. She invites delegates to come and meet her, representatives of both sides. She listens to her officials. She listens to these people. And she comes up with a compromise solution. She meets with Gandhiji. Gandhiji comes to, uh, you know, talk to her. And he's stunned because he comes to meet her, not in the palace, because she moves around a lot. She prefers staying in these little travelers' bungalows in different parts of the state. So when Gandhiji comes, she's staying by in a beach bungalow next to, in a guest house at, at Varkala Beach. And he's stunned because he walks in. And the story in the family goes that he thought that she was her lady-in-waiting or something because he walks into the room and all he sees is this woman dressed in plain white, no ornaments, like just a single chain around her neck, and standing in the room with her husband. And Gandhiji thought that a princess or a queen or a Maharani would be in silks and wearing pearls and diamonds and things like that. And he wrote in his journal, in his magazine called Young India, that he walked in expecting something like that. But what he saw was this highly simple woman who should be a lesson to other Indian princes, not only in simplicity, but also in how she behaves and her, her sort of perspective and her views and so on. And she hammers out a deal with Gandhiji saying that, She's not going to bulldoze anything through. She says, reform, you have to persuade people, win them over, and through consensus is the way she's going to work. So she says, fine, they want access to the roads. She'll give them access to three roads around the temple. There are four roads, right? All four sides of the temple. Take access to the three roads. The fourth road, which is considered the main entrance, and the Brahmins are all objecting, saying lower caste people should not be allowed. She said, for the time being, let that be in the hands of the Brahmins. And she constructs a parallel road. And she says, this is open to everybody, irrespective of caste. And slowly over the next four, five years, practically on a case-by-case basis, based on issues in different temples, she starts opening up public roads to all castes. Till by 1929, basically all roads are uh, thrown open to people of all castes. And this is what sets the stage for something her successor does, which is to throw open temples itself in the mid-1930s. She sorts of builds up that process and allows that to happen. Uh, she appoints as one of the first things she does when she is put in power, when she inherits power from her uncle, is uh, to place a woman at the head of the medical department. That was essentially like the health minister at the time. She gets a woman in that position. She starts nominating women to the Legislative Council of Travancore. A second representative house, there also she nominates women. Uh, she, The first uh, feature film that comes out of Kerala has a Dalit woman playing an upper caste lady and her life is threatened. All these men say, how dare a Dalit woman play upper caste uh, roles? This woman, gives, the Marani gives her protection and actually ensures that uh, she's she's kept safe. There's midwives. She opens up very simple stuff, but stuff that has major repercussions for women. So uh, 
births, midwife classes are introduced, batches of midwives are trained. And by the end of her reign, one fifth of all the births in Travancore are handled in a professional manner, even in villages, because these midwives are sent out even to rural areas. And this is something which would never strike a male Maharaja. Yeah, and never it's, not even really get a, it's not from, really a, a thing yeah, for them. Yeah. But it's not like she focused only on health and women. She also focused on public works. Some of the biggest roads and highways and bridges that are still being used in Kerala were built by her. She allocated one fifth of her revenues to public works and one fifth of her revenues to education, which meant there was a huge boost in school building and running schools, including private schools. She starts in a major way giving a lot of grants to even private schools so that they can match up uh, textbook uh, development, etc. Schools that you know don't have enough material, she'll send them from the capital. Public works, you know, Cochin Harbour. Uh, Cochin became again a port of significance because she tied up with the Cochin Maharaja. Cochin's not technically in her control. But she invested in it because she knew her state would also benefit from it. In fact, you've described that at length and that kind of struck me because it shows an instinctive understanding, not just of the positive externalities of public goods like a port like that. She's actually spending money of her own kingdom on what belongs to another kingdom because like you said, Cochin is uh, separate. And the British have control over the actual port. And, and, you know, to not be stuck in a zero-sum mentality, to be able to understand that this will benefit us also seems remarkably forward. Another thing that struck me going back to her meeting with Gandhi was two things struck me from that, like when he goes there to negotiate with her. One, as you describe, is that as he's leaving, she says, I hope before you leave Kerala, you'll meet the other Mahatma. And this other Mahatma she's referring to is Narayana Guru, who's actually from a lower caste. So it is almost astonishing that a Maharaja uh, of a higher caste is, uh, you know, referring to a person. And she never met him personally. She never met him. She she knew his significance. The thing is, what is interesting about her is it's very difficult to place her in an exact box because she's not a feminist in the sense, like like the junior Rani, she didn't get a birth control activist to Trivandrum. But she's a feminist in the sense as Jay Devika, the feminist scholar in Trivandrum was telling me uh, when I interviewed her for the book, she created spaces for women. She didn't promote individual women. She created spaces by putting aside seats for women in, in the legislative council, by allowing women to go and study law, by giving scholarships for women to go to medical school. You know, these programs that she started, she started this very innovative scheme where any girl in Travancore who went to college was invited automatically to tea at the palace with the Maharani. Just as a sort of incentive saying that, you know, you can get access. She was the chief celebrity of her time. So this was a way of, in, you know, inspiring girls to actually go She was go Kim Kardashian and, in the palace. Uh, uh, well, I wouldn't give you that analogy. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. but yeah. So she was, you know, she she had innovative ways of, of, of promoting what she wanted. So it was public works. It was this, but on a social level. Look, the 1920s were a time of economic boom. Till the Great Depression happens in 29. There's a huge boom around the world. She realizes that the, who are the engines of the economy in terms of trade and enterprise? The Nayas and the Brahmins, the upper castes are landed communities. Land is sinking. Agriculture is not the future. Trade and business and factories, and these are the things that are the future. The communities who that are doing this are who? Syrian Christians, who are in a privileged community, and the Iravas. Now, the Iravas were a low-caste community that cultivated palm trees and toddy tappers, etc. But they also worked in Koya. Now, earlier, they would produce coir for local markets, their feudal lords, etc. The colonial economy connected Travancore to the colonial ecosystem. So suddenly, their coir mats and carpets and ropes were in high demand in England and in Europe and different parts of the world in America. Suddenly, the Irava community started getting, instead of being paid in kind for their services, they started earning cash. 
with cash they started buying land their enterprises grew the whole community started rising and a guru like shrinarayana guru gave it moral force gave as a reformer and as a man who stood up for their rights and said that you don't need the approval of the upper castes he gave it moral force so by the 1920s they became exceedingly powerful even though they were a, technically a lower caste setu lakshmi bai recognized that she realized that the syrian christians and the iravas are the engines of growth she decided to promote these communities a great deal much to the resentment of the old feudal communities it's never easy i mean think of places in india there are places in uttar pradesh even now still caught up in this feudal mentality so think of the 1920s in a highly caste based society like kerala a woman coming in and promoting a lower caste and a christian group she appoints a christian as her chief secretary she appoints a christian as her chief minister it was the, it was i think the second time in travancore's history that a christian was made chief minister the first time was when the state didn't have much of a choice and the british resident himself became the minister but this was the first time she actually appoints a christian to that position so she had guts to do a lot of things of that nature but she personally remained extremely conservative and there are amusing things like this for example when she came to power both the british resident and the man she chose as her chief minister a man called mr watts both of these men are in their 50s and they're both bachelors setu rakshav has no 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 i can't receive bachelors in the palace i can't be seen sitting and having conversations with unmarried men because she's orthodox she's like what do people think about me so these poor men and middle aged men are forced to go and marry women who are 20 30 years younger than them simply because the maharani insists that they have to get married and at the residence uh, wedding she even sends a nice present saying that you know congratulations on your wedding and the marriages are disasters because both have married highly younger you know, far younger women than they should have and you know the the marriages are disasters for them but they had no option but to get married because the maharani of travancore would not receive them in her drawing room otherwise every time she received them she would make sure her husband was present her enemies used this to say that she was controlled by the husband and he's there like this sort of uh, conspiring uh, weird influence behind her throne but the fact was that you know she said nobody should gossip about me uh, having any contact with unmarried men or any men face to face in a closed room so my husband will always be there and when a husband went hunting or shooting or whatever she wouldn't meet the divan it would be difficult for them to get meetings with her because she would not meet face to face with them she would correspond and write letters and do it through notes and files but not in person so personally very conservative but in terms of her policies creating lots of spaces for women to grow in fact what struck me about her governance was that the way i would sum it up and tell me if you agree is that she was liberal but not radical uh, and an illustration of that being again going back to her meeting with gandhi when she meets him and she gives him the permission to make a statement about her feelings and the statement he makes basically says that you know that the that she isn't against uh, you know this caste entry into temples and all of that but she is stuck in an entrenched system where she yeah. can not force it through herself but if public opinion it's comes changed. It, yeah. it's changed then she can make it happen so she is not like a radical she's not trying to force change through she knows that things will take time within she's the structure she's all about consensus and compromise she's yeah. all about you know working slowly rather than leaping with great radical enthusiasm because she somehow has a distrust of it she's always very cautious about what she does but the result is that these 7 years that she's in power become a huge boom in travancore because revenues rise a port is being built the railways come to trivandrum electricity comes to trivandrum telephone services are expanded and open to the public things that are only available in the palace are now open to everybody girls start going to medical school and there are major incentives for that a uh, film industry becomes a reality in 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 travancore slowly with that first uh, film that she supports uh you know so all kinds of developments are happening of course in the palace things are also going bad in the sense that her sister is completely chafing under this regime of the senior rani the junior rani hates the fact that she has to live for the for so many years under her sister's thumb so there's feuds over how much money should be given to her 
So Senior Rani says, your palace expenses, you decide how you want to spend it. Those expenses I'll give. But Junior Rani also wants more money. Like she's saying, anything connected with the future Maharaja, she should be allowed to control. But Senior says, no, as the head of the matrilineal family, I am the eldest member. I will control those aspects. That is my privilege and prerogative. And it is true. But Senior Rani takes it very personally. At one point, there's a black magic incident, you know, where they're trying to... Tell that, that was fascinating. Tell me a bit more about that. I mean, you have a whole chapter on that. Which That's, is... you know, it's interesting because you always think uh, the British sort of had the documents are all boring and stayed, etc. But if you read these fortnightly reports that the British resident sent the Viceroy, not just from Travancore, but from any court, it is essentially a gossip sheet. Are these available online? No, 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 exactly. They're in the archives, some in Delhi, but a lot in the British archives because the Indian copies were largely destroyed at the time of independence so that Nehru could not blackmail the princes. (laughs) So the ones, however, whatever they took, they took and put it in London, away from the reach of the Indian government. So they, these are gossip sheets because knowledge is power. Intelligence is power. You know what the weaknesses of a Raja are, who he's sleeping with, you know, whether he's homosexual, things like that. You discover little secrets like that about a man or about a ruling family. It's far easier to control them. You know exactly where to uh, hit them, where it, where it hurts. So uh, the, what's fascinating is in this black magic episode, the British resident had his spies informing him exactly about how many rats were being sacrificed, where the priests came from, how much money they had been promised. Nothing escaped his eye. Like he knew exactly what was happening in the palace. And this uh, sets in, you know, uh, starts turning other wheels where the British start saying, oh my God, you can't have the Maharaja exposed to a condition like this. We must separate him from his mother. And what the junior Rani was doing to sum up or was alleged to be doing to sum up was carrying out rituals which would even involve human sacrifice where the idea was that the senior Rani dies and her own kid, the next Maharaja, is uh, mentally incapacitated. So she basically becomes a queen. Yeah, I mean, the record seems to suggest her mother, which is mm-hmm. Ravi younger daughter, she's the one who was the force behind this. Junior Rani by herself, I don't think was much of a believer in black magic, but the British often refer, refer to the fact that the Junior Rani's relations are a thoroughly bad lot. It's a court. Yeah, her brothers. And- her brothers and her mother. Mm-hmm. They say that whenever they come to the palace, it's chaos because they start putting all these plots uh, they start working all these plots, which is why finally after this black magic and all that, the mother and the brothers are asked to leave. They're told to go back to Mavelikara, which is where they come from, and not come back to the palace. They're not allowed to see the Maharaja without uh, permission from the British, really. And it's only after the boy grows up and becomes king that they're finally allowed to come back. So Junirani spends a lot of her time traveling. She stays outside the state in Uti and Calcutta and places like that. And she's enthusiastic about going out. Now here, that is a little bit of Sethu Lakshmi fault in the sense that the world is changing. Sethu Lakshmi is still holding to that old royal protocol because she thinks that is her duty to preserve the existing system, build and change through consensus and compromise, nothing too radical. And that notion of royalty as being semi-divine must be above all criticism. You know, you should always be seen to be perfect. So if you're going out for parties, if you're going out and meeting people in Calcutta, etc., if you're traveling and that's costing the state a lot of money, these are things that can be avoided. In Sethu Lakshmi view, you should not do any of that. Why do you need to do that? Stay in the palace and live your life. Why do you want to travel and all that? Junior Rani is like anxious to even cross the seas and go abroad. So there's, even in terms of their personalities, the two women don't match. One in the junior Rani sees the changing world. She wants to be part of this changing universe, this pan-Indian network of glamorous Rajas, Ranis and people like that. She wants to be part of that. Senior Rani does not understand it. Finally, in 1931, November 1931, the regency comes to an end. The junior Rani's son comes to the throne, which essentially means that man doesn't have much of a personality. All the records suggest that he's a very gentle, wonderful human being, but as a king, somewhat devoid of uh, of, of, of power that he needed to wield because all that was controlled by his mother and by his minister, the famous Sir C.P. Ramaswamy Ayer, who would be the last powerful Divan of Travancore. And uh, 
from this time you start seeing Setu Lakshmi Bai starts receiving a lot of harassment. And it's all kinds of petty things, you know, like it's almost payback for the seven years that she was in power. Now her sister's basically giving her payback for and, and But it struck me that she's also sort of tied into a lot of these superficial symbolic things. For example, you know, she wants a twenty one gun salute to continue after yeah. she's uh, whatever and and all of these little petty things. So I can understand that okay, she's going to negotiate over whatever her royal salary is and uh, royal yeah. pension is or whatever. But there are also these other petty things. Yeah. Which, For example, uh, she's told that she must come and call on the Maharaja every two weeks. And she's like, I'm older than him. I'm his aunt. Why should I go and call on him? The tradition is that he should come and call on me. So then that proposal is gone. Then they say, oh, your daughters must come and see him. She says, fine. But when the daughters are sent, they're told to meet the Maharaja alone. And she says, no, my daughters are girls. They're children. The Maharaja, that is a junior Rani's son, is a practical stranger to them. They don't know him very well. Till they grow up, once they grow up, they can see him alone. But till they grow up, I will not allow my daughters to see the Maharaja by themselves. Their father must be present. Now, the junior Rani hates the senior's husband. So why would she want him in the room? So they say, no, as head of the family, he may not be able to persuade you to come and see him, but he definitely has control over the children. He's their official guardian. So he can come on and she has no option. She has to live with that. Then they say, all your jewelry must be sent to us for inspection every six months. <laughs> and Setu Lakshmi Bhai sees through the insult. She's like, this is a way to get my jewelry back. It has nothing to do with inspection. It's harassment. Like every six months, you have to keep sending your personal jewelry for inspection. She's like, just take the jewelry. I'll make my private jewelry with my private money, with my income, my pension and so on. Uh, at one point, she wants to travel. They won't let her travel. Uh, there's even petty things. For example, as... Maharani of the state, she's entitled to guards and a certain protection. Now, she does not like living in Trivandrum once her sister's power, son comes to power because it's it's unhealthy. She doesn't want to stay there. She builds a private house for herself outside Trivandrum in a village and she wants to just retire and live in the village. But they say, oh, but your protection must come with you because you're the queen. Uh, so the, instead of guards being posted there for a certain number of days, every day the guards have to be changed, which means every day the guards have to go to the village, come back to Trivandrum. And who's got to pay for this? The senior Rani has to supply the money for this. So she's like, you're trying to bleed me. Then don't give me guards because I can't afford to have guards moving up and down when they can stay there for 15 days at a stretch. You know, let them stay there. Why do you want to keep moving them up and down? There's that. At one point, they take over her ancestral estates. A senior Rani, she controls a 15,000 acre estate. And it is through that that her servants are paid. Her establishment is paid. She doesn't have a separate income. That is what uh, supplies her her chief source of personal income. They take over that. And the British basically shut their eyes and allow the Maharaja to do it. Because the British are coming from a patriarchal thing. They're like, yeah, Maharani must listen to the Maharaja. He, she can't independently work. They don't understand that in the matrilineal system, family matters are decided by the head of the family. That is not gendered. The head of the family is the oldest member of the family, which whether it's male or female, you have to listen to that person. Technically, Setu Lakshmi is the head of the family, but her, her, she has no voice there. She, you know, when she rules, when she finishes her reign in 1931, she's ruled exceedingly well. The British love her, nationalists like Gandhiji love her. She's the people respect her. And you find this even in records to the 19 late 1940s. She's been out of power for 18 years, not seen by anybody for 18 years. But even VP Menon and his people who come to negotiate the integration with the Indian Union say that the that Setu Lakshmi Bhai is far more popular than the junior Rani and her son who've been lose, ruling for the last 17 years. Because her memory is still extremely fond as far as the people are concerned. So she has to really negotiate with the Maharaja and finally get the British involved to get a decent pension, which is 75,000 rupees a year. Now you look at what North Indian Rajas of much smaller, poorer states were spending. 75,000 was a very modest amount. So Maharaja with great resistance finally satisfies and gives her a 75,000 rupee pension. She wanted more, but she gets 75,000 rupees. His 18-year-old brother or 19-year-old brother casually gives him a 1 lakh rupee allowance. 
This is all a signal. So you rule for seven years, work hard and actually rule the state. You get only 75,000. My younger brother, who's just turned 19, a teenager, he gets one lakh a year. That's his allowance. So all of this makes her realize that she is essentially becoming a second class citizen. This kind of pettiness you see even now in government, right? It's the, 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 the kind of things the current ruling dispensation, for example, does against a certain family, for example, or petty things like denying leader of opposition post on certain technicalities, reducing somebody's security, etc., which is not a bad thing, frankly, you still have security, but it's all about making them feel like you are no, no longer what you used to be. And that happened a lot here as well. She was increasingly marginalized and cornered. And finally, in the 1940s, she had an estate uh, that she purchased privately in the hills. So she and her family could have summer vacations there, taken over by the state. It had to wait till after independence that she got it back. The government of India gave it back to her, not the government of Travancore. For 10 years, it was in the hands of the Maharaja because he said, no, I'm going to take over it. Uh, her private residences, she was told by the 1940s, you can't stay in your private houses. You must live in Travancore. And because her estate has been taken over, it means her servants are controlled by the junior Rani's son. Her house is controlled by the junior Rani's son. And perhaps the greatest tragedy of her life, that palace was built by her. She raised her children there. When the partition of family properties took place in the 1970s, the Maharaja claimed that palace. And even though she went to the Supreme Court, she didn't get it. So her, the palace she built, in which she lived, in which she ruled, in which her children were raised, that also went to her sister's son. So, you know, it was no wonder that as soon as independence came, the Maharani had two daughters. The older daughter said, I am done with being royalty. I mean, this is an oppressive, harassed sort of existence. We've got, it's like living in a gilded cage. You've got all the servants and technically the money and the privileges, but you're, you have no freedom. You can't go from one room to the other without being followed by servants who are all paid by the other center, the other ones who are actually in power. So this resentment builds up. So the daughter says, I'm done being royalty. I'm going to Bangalore. She goes off to Bangalore, buys a private house there, puts all her children into school. So her, from being Her Highness Uttaram Tirunal Lalitamba Bai Tambura and second princess of Travancore, the girl becomes simply Lalita Varma. She gives up her titles. She becomes just Lalita Varma, puts all her children into public schools, starts driving her own car. And it's an education for her from day one. There's this wonderful story in the family about how she went to Bangalore Club to shop. Bangalore Club has these shops. And this is 1949, soon after she's arrived. So she's put all the things in the basket and she's taken to the till. And the lady says, that'll be 89 rupees, madam. And she says, what are rupees? Because she's never actually dealt with wow. currency. She understands the vague concept. So her driver from behind has to say, don't worry, let her go, I'll pay. Because she's as, you know, alien to this independent life as that. But from there, she starts becoming a very autonomous figure. Becomes, as her children say, her greatest ambition in life was to be a housewife. Because she had seen what power did. She had seen what palaces and that kind of, that quest for money and power could do. She didn't want any of that. She just wanted her children to be happy almost middle-class people who had little jobs and little things and they all lived together happily. And that is the life she wanted. The Maharani, Setu Lakshmi Bai would come and the story, she came first in 1951. And she was scandalized to discover that her children were crossing the road to go to school. Because the school was the Baldwin Girls School on Richmond Road in Bangalore, just across their gate. And their gate was here. She said, no, 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 how these poor children look at them with their heavy bags and they're going to school walking and they have to cross the road. It's very dangerous. So while she was there, she insisted the children go by car. And she had this stretch limo, a humber. All these granddaughters of hers would be put into this car and taken to school on the other side. And the story goes that in those days, Richmond Road was so narrow that when the front of the car was in the school, the back was still in the house. <laughs> and, you know, that is the kind of world they had to start adjusting to. Then, of course, uh, 1950s, you know, for ironically, for a family that had all this protocol, 300 servants around them, uh, you know, Martha and Dorma created all this artificial vocabulary, they're always referred to as highnesses and all of that. What happens in Kerala? The commies come to power. 
one day Setulakshmi wakes up and discovers her servants in the palace. She's sent away most of them because the privy purse the Maharaja gets, he doesn't support her from that. She has to live out of her own minor income of 50,000 rupees a year uh, that the government of India has bestowed on her. She has to manage her palace with that. So she's reduced her staff to 50 servants and 25 work for 10 days and then uh, 15 days and then the other 25 take over. It's a very small establishment, but they've formed a union and someone's gone and put the communist flag on top of the palace. And that's when she discovers, why am I even living here? You know, I'm not welcome here. The Maharaja doesn't want me, doesn't seem to respect me. Uh, I have to maintain a palace at great personal expense. My daughters have left. The younger daughter had gone off to Madras by then, where her husband became a lawyer because he wanted to have a profession. She decides to move to Bangalore. And this woman, you know, in the middle of a siege practically by her servants, where the police are deployed to make sure that she can safely get out of the palace because they're refusing to operate the palace. Palaces are not built like individual houses. You can't just go and cook your food in the kitchen. And not that she knew how to cook. So, you know, you needed your servants to operate it. She leaves the palace and never comes back. So she gets out of the palace, sits in her car. First, she drives to the Padmanabha Swami temple, the family deity. In the car, she turns around saying, forgive me, I'm not staying anymore. You are now in my heart. I will never be able to see you again. Goes to the railway station, which was the last time in her life where a crowd of people bow to her because they recognize the Maharani of Travancore. They know who she is. She gets in a train, first goes to Madras. From there, stays with her younger daughter for a while, then drives off to Bangalore. And in Bangalore, she uh, purchases the house next to her sisters, constructs a little bungalow there, and it's called Srinivas. And there's this wonderful envelope. You know, she her title was fully was Her Highness Sri Padmanabha Sevani Vanchidharma Vardhini Raja Rajeshwari Maharani Puradam Dirunal Setu Lakshmi Bhai Maharaja Artingal Mutadamburan Companion of the Most Imperial Order of the Crown of India. That was her full title. But as soon as she moves to Bangalore, she starts signing her letters, etc. Simply Srimati Setu Lakshmi Bhai. She's given up her titles. Like her daughter, she just decides to become a nobody. And then after this, from 1957, she dies in 1985. All these, this two and a half decades odd that she lived, she never went back to Kerala. And slowly the state starts acquiring her various properties. She's told one fine day that the house that she'd built in the village where she wasn't allowed to stay by the Maharaja, it was still hers. State wants to start an agriculture college there. She says, fine, take it. Her husband had a house uh, by the beach where he kept his things, etc. State got involved and said, we are acquiring this for uh, tourism purposes. No option. You have to give it up to the state. Slowly everything is gone. Till finally in the 1970s, they... Um, want to set up a medical research facility in her official palace. Although the Maharaja is the owner and he eventually gets the compensation for it, they can't uh, do it without her permission because she's in possession of the keys. So they, the man comes, M.S. Valyatan, the celebrated uh, you know, medical grandee. So he shows up and he told me this, that he showed up there and everybody, many people told her, don't do this. How are you giving up your last thing left in Kerala to somebody? And uh, she sort of, he misses his flight. By the time he gets to her house in Bangalore, it's midnight. This is in 76 or so. And she's waiting. She's awake. And her daughter says, of course, she's awake. She's waiting to sign the papers. And he brings her the papers. She signs her right over the palace off, claims that gives up her possession, hands over the keys. And then she looks up to him, holds up her hands and says, Valyatan, this is my freedom at midnight. Because now she has nothing. Like for a woman who was queen from the age of five, from the age of five, she had a 21-gun salute. She had 300 servants. Her own father would bow to her. Her husband refers to her highness. She's never known a life different. She's never known another existence. From there, suddenly, and she turns to her family member and says, once I had a kingdom, but that is gone. Then I thought I had my palaces, but that those are gone too. Then I thought I had this house, but now I can only say I have this room because that is what her life is reduced to, that one room where she's increasingly crippled, she can't go out. And she's stuck there. And, you know, all, as her grandson told me, all she sees is the sun and the, and the you know, morning and evening happening through her windows. And she's just sitting there in that room for the next 20 years of her life. 
and when finally she dies in 1985 she's cremated in an electric crematorium surrounded just by family members like anybody's grandmother nobody would know this was a person who once dealt with gandhi who once dealt with mussolini's daughter who once impressed rabindranath tagore who once ruled and controlled the destinies of 5 million people none of that she disappeared as a complete nobody and for me that arc was fascinating the think that even now for people to give up power it's so difficult you know when you have power it's very difficult to give up your conveniences and enjoying that power to give up money to become a nobody and here was this woman who from the beginning first she couldn't produce the mail then you know she couldn't uh, keep herself on good terms with her sister then she was harassed a great deal by her sister and her son the maharaja made to feel unwelcome in the royal family itself communists seized her palace and sort of took over control and she had to leave her palace itself was seized by various people her children didn't want any part of her royal legacy and she ends up you know accepting the fact that she's become a nobody and for a brahmin controlled palace where even her meals are cooked by uh, nambudriya by uh, sacred thread wearing high caste groups by the end of her life it was christian maids and naya you know so called shudra women who were cooking her meals and she accepted that and she lived with that sort of thing and that acceptance of her fate understanding that the page of history had turned not only was the royal class irrelevant she in particular was doubly irrelevant and she had been reduced to a footnote in the history of travanco for all her achievements the future was controlled by the junior maharani Ironically the junior maharani's family still live in a palace in Trivandrum and the, again the i didn't include this in the book but if you look at the national archives there is this tone of surprise because vp menon and his uh, colleague velodi they come to trivandrum to negotiate privy purse and the allowances etc and velodi writes a letter to vp menon uh, in delhi saying that i was completely startled by the fact that the maharaja is negotiating what amount he should get what his mother brother his family members should get but he did not once refer to the senior maharani it felt as though she doesn't even exist as far as the maharaja is concerned and they were surprised by the pettiness of it they were surprised that he wouldn't even acknowledge her existence to begin with as small things for example you know again it's not in the book but in the archives they talk about how the maharaja gets electricity exemption free electricity for himself and his brother's palace nothing for the senior rani so she is now she's not getting a share of the privy purse she's getting 50000 rupees as allowance in a year she has to maintain a palace no privileges uh, other than you know the money that she gets and you know not even mentioned as a factor in the negotiations finally it's vp menon and velodi themselves go to the senior maharani they find out from her and she's got pretty modest demand she's like my children should not be treated unfairly if the other family is getting certain allowances my children should get something similar in the end they don't they get a smaller allowance because they have no power and it's interesting to see that although technically you're royalty although technically you're uh, a queen you're entirely powerless and having to live through that i thought was interesting whereas the junior rani's family they continue to live there i think the last time the maharani's met was uh, before setu lakshmi bai leaves for bangalore in 1957 and then they meet once more in their life which is 23 years almost 23 years later in 1979 uh four years before the junior rani dies and you know six years before the senior rani dies the junior rani calls up and expresses a desire to meet her older sister and uh, the family tells me that she didn't want the senior rani didn't want to meet because here she was a bedridden in bangalore in this house and you know she didn't feel like and this this was a past that she had forgotten that she that was a different person and this was a different person a toxic world she left behind she didn't basically. want to be part of that but she couldn't say no either so they came they had a nice little meeting etc and and that was that and you know 
she did ask one thing apparently and this i've not put in the book because i can't substantiate it with documents but interviews with her family members they told me that she did ask the junior rani that why are you even taking my palace you know that palace which she built where her children were brought up which was home for them their final property in kerala why are you even claiming that and junior rani had some answer for it saying oh no but you know something on the other and she said you know she just smiled and she said okay fine clearly this is even asking for that much is 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 too much as far as she was concerned so she said forget it and her daughter's children you know they have very little awareness of their royal heritage i mean they're aware of it they know that it's there and they know their grandmother was somebody important but they have very few royal heirs because they like she abandoned it she gave it up so why should we you know uh, feel like we are entitled to something and i thought that that what well, there was a tragic element to it i mean there is criticism that she presided over a feudal court it was casteist and she of course had her weaknesses and her flaws naturally but on the whole if you look at the story you know it it ends on a very tragic note and i was just keen to sort of make sure that you know this lady who led this very remarkable life forget the personal drama even what she achieved in that space of 7 years those 7 years are just remarkable the kind of reforms and changes she made Keralaites are still enjoying the benefits of those seven years. The same roads we're still using that with the, the Cochin Harbour, the schools, the buildings, the colleges—all of that is still there. And I was like, that deserves some sort of commemoration. So all the Travancore history you would find was pro Junior Rani's family because they continue to live in Travancore. They continue to have a very important sort of profile there. They are influential people there. So all the local historians are focused on them. My job was to. uh revise that record slightly and put things in the perspective because the record is clear the to go beyond Rani. the scene into the unseen yeah correct <laughs> because, <laughs> yeah <laughs> no the line that really stuck me from your story is the sort of the self awareness and the reflective nature of the senior rani when she signs away her final property papers and says this is my freedom at midnight yeah. and it strikes me that you know the story you've told is from her childhood till you know she's out of the throne and it, it, it strikes me that there's a fantastic story there as well of giving up royalty and learning yeah. to live as a normal person Correct. and coming to terms with all of that and i'm sure some of that of stripping the baggage of the past must also involve a lot of self reflection which would be you know really interesting in a book yeah. if but that's really not a task for a historian it, but a novelist or a poet do well in a novel that that exactly. actually see the thing is when you're doing a biography your greatest challenge is trying to get into the mind of that person and here i was a, a fairly young person starting at 19 and even when i finished i was only in my mid 20s trying to decipher the mind of a woman who had lived in a different world who had died 30 years before me i mean 5 years before i was born uh you know and and occupied such a different space altogether and she's a woman so it's like it's not easy to sort of penetrate a mind that is you know so lost in time and so lost even in terms of its its, its basic nature but you know i thought for me it was a rewarding experience and the wealth of material the one thing i think her, her the vindication really is that although she was treated badly and she was written out of history the records were there so for me it was just a question of resurrecting her from the records the records make it very clear that she suffered that she was uh, treated badly that she went through everything from black magic to her money being reduced to her palace being taken over by others and it tells you so much about human behavior as well it tells you that even you you can have all the power in the world you can have all the money in the world but decency is a quality that does not necessarily come to every human being so have her grandchildren read your book how have they reacted for them a lot of them is it's it surprised a lot of them they, they didn't know this they didn't know a lot i mean they knew vaguely that she had suffered because she had come away to bangalore so they knew that their family's exodus to bangalore i mean even now in india we have people who have coronations and they pretend to be maharajas yeah. and they have these titles that they still use and here is a woman who in 1950s itself the family gives up everything and moves up and doesn't go back like they as one granddaughter told me they don't have a spot of land where they can stick a needle and say this is ours in a kingdom that their ancestors ruled for centuries because that's the choice their their family made 
So they were not aware of all the details of the extent to which their grandmother had to face harassment and various problems, etc. They were not aware of the the degree to which court intrigue could completely upset a person's life. Or even to think she achieved like winning Gandhi's uh, respect, yeah. governing so well, uh, you know, being so reformist in her thinking about caste and gender, yeah. however she might have been in personal yeah. life. All of that is uh, pretty... All of that, yeah. Much, they, I, I think they were surprised in many ways in many ways by that. The One of the interesting things she also did was she struck down the matrilineal system by law. Irony, no? That yeah. she, she inherited power through that system, but it was in her time that it was formally abolished. Because by then, the clamor for patriarchal families and nuclear families grew. The thing was, matrilineal families also joint families. So, which means all the properties tied up. So, as I said, the Iravas and the Christians are moneyed classes. They're moving ahead. So, the Nayas felt we need to also move ahead. Now, all you have is land. So, you sell the land, which means land has to be partitioned. Partition means you have to break the joint family, which means the matrilineal family has to break. And also, your education system, your new morality is telling you patriarchy is the way to go forward. So, all things come together. In 1925, this lady, Saito Lakshmi is the one who ironically ends up abolishing the matrilineal system. And in many ways, she is the last representative of that system. She, her story is a, a story of how that, that, that conflict with an emerging new patriarchal morality upsets and reduces the position of matrilineal women. And the male Maharaja, who's her technically her nephew and therefore lower to her in the palace, in the family hierarchy, suddenly becomes the main person because he's a man. And it's interesting. She is the last person to climb on that branch and then she cuts it off yeah. herself. Right, so that's really been very fascinating and it's almost time to wrap it up. But before we go, you know, looking at modern Kerala today, sort of, it, it, it's kind of interesting that like you pointed out earlier, attitudes and uh, social norms and mores that we think have come down from time immemorial can often be very recent, like, for example, the Victorian morality and all of that. How much of that ancient Kerala, which you describe in your book through the middle years of the century, the empower, empowered women and uh, so on, is actually present in modern Kerala? You see, you know, the, and the hints are very clear. For example, Kerala has uh, the India's highest divorce rate. That's partly because I think as a legacy of the matrilineal system. Which is, by the way, a great thing it because is, it, it means more women are correct. empowered. They have, so they, are, should... they have agency. If you're yeah. in a bad marriage, leaving it is not taboo. It uh, is it's I possible. Once wrote, I once wrote a column saying we should celebrate rising divorce rates, which of mm-hmm. course got me trolled because yeah, it's course. like, what the fuck? Yeah. yeah. But, no, but yeah. As, a, as an indicator, it's always a great thing because yeah. it shows that women will not take nonsense from their husbands simply to stay in a marriage. A, a high divorce rate is a mark that at least the women have that much agency. Um, they similarly, you know, people often say rape is highest in Kerala, reported rape. That is to say, women in Kerala feel that they can report it and there will be consequences to the culprits for that. Whereas in some states of India, it's, there's so much taboo that most women won't even report it. Yeah, so a high, in UP, there's just no point. Yeah, so there's a, a high, you know, a rape thing on record is a sign again that women are not, uh, they don't feel like their life ends because of, of a violation of their, of their person and their body. So there's, you know, there are advantages and you see, uh, markers like that which speak to you uh, but they get also this other weird thing which is that the matrilineal system as it was fading so my great-grandmother she went to school because by then it was normal for girls to go to school and what was interesting though was this while girls were allowed to go to school Kerala was one of the first places to allow girls to go to school because matrilineal permitted women literacy and education that new system of education was a patriarchal one. So it was also the same textbooks and the same thing that subconsciously told these women, your job is to be good wives, your job is to be good mothers, and you must be maternal, let your husbands handle things like that. So it also ingrained a strange kind of patriarchy in Kerala, and that is also equally alive. So on the one hand, you do have women with agency, but you also have a deeply entrenched patriarchal mindset in Kerala now. Entirely artificial, entirely born out of male insecurities. 
because in the 19th century these men felt like they had to control their women to be masculine but that also exists simultaneously so you have both uh, things that actually exist in kerala but one of the things that uh, advantages that the state has because it had rulers like setu lakshmi bai is that kerala is talking language uh, the language of the right to internet because there's no roti kapada and pro- makan problem in kerala these things were already handled a while ago kerala is the one state where land reforms did work it actually meant something earlier in, in many north indian states land reforms were just on paper in reality families managed to find loopholes and jump through it whereas in kerala land reforms actually did take place and most of the land was in many ways redistributed and other people ended up getting lots of land so there are changes in kerala that were born out of not only the communists who did a great job at least for as far as welfareism is concerned but also the previous royal rulers because under pressure from the colonial state under pressure pressure from a lot of missionaries they had no option but to invest in education but to slowly peel back social inequalities build up infrastructure in the state and that has therefore kept the state in a very uh, let's say enviable position as far as human life is concerned it has issues with manufacturing and industry but overall you know life in kerala you enter kerala the first thing you'll see is ads for fabric uh, for textiles and gold because it's one of the biggest consumer states in the country for gold and textiles because people have disposable income you drive through kerala villages everybody has a pakka house most of these houses are flamboyant houses often uh, you know financed by dubai money but the point is that people have a lifestyle that is uh, fairly superior in fact i i uh, uh, read on the internet uh, recently that uh, there was a survey of the fastest growing cities in the world and three, three of the top 10 were kerala yeah. and you could argue four if sharja is to be included <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> Yeah. So so let's move from the state of Kerala to the state of uh, Manipal. You told me the last time we met that you wanted to write three books before 30. That is done. You have written three books before 30. Is the rest of your life a long slow decline like Setu Lakshmi Bai oh, or I hope not. <laughs> what what are you working on now? No, I am working on something. In fact, the research is more or less done. I just have to digest the research and start writing. So my deadline is 2022 to publish the book. so but you know that that is a lot of work because i'm also doing my phd so i'm on leave at the moment but uh, i resume at the end of this summer so i have to focus on phd and my writing and this is perhaps my most ambitious book in many ways it will probably be also my most controversial book i mean so far you know writing about forgotten sultans of the deccan forgotten queen of travel no you can say some important mm. things but you know it doesn't upset the the political uh, weirdos that are out there but the next one i have a feeling might just Uh, get a few rotten eggs to sort of perk up and think, my God, how dare he say this? So well, there is there is that project underway, but it will take me a while to actually, you know, complete it. Well, it's a pleasure having you on the scene and the unseen. I hope when your next controversial book gets done, do come here. This is one platform which will still welcome your yeah, heretical no, views. Yeah, I'll let you know as soon as it's out so we can do <laughs> yeah. a scene and the unseen. Session. Yeah, thanks a lot, Manu. Thanks. If you enjoyed listening to the episode do go on over to your nearest bookstore online or offline and buy the ivory throne by Manu Pillai do search for his other books you can follow Manu on Twitter at Unam Pillai that's Manu upside down or backside whatever uh, Unam Pillai you can follow me at Amit Verma A M I T V A R M A the way the people in Kerala write Verma and not these ignorant north indians uh, you can browse past episodes of the scene in the unseen at sceneunseen.in and thinkpragati.com the scene in the unseen is supported by the takshashila institution you can check out all their courses in public policy at takshashila.org.in thank you for listening